everybody here. I, I thought this would be a wonderful time for us to get together and celebrate what we have in common. And most particularly, let's all share something from the heart about what we've learned from the Latino community. I mean, so much. I mean, I learned to love from Latin women. I've learned about love. I've learned about life. I've learned about the virtues of hard work, the virtues of stoicism, the virtues of family, the virtues of never saying n no, never saying die, never, never giving up. Right? Latinos are great attorneys and doctors and lawyers. They're, they're shining beacons of light in our country. I mean, when it comes to what have I learned from the Latino community, my, my mind just boggles, bro. How has it impacted you personally? What have you learned? So this is Katie Hobbs here being asked, what have you learned personally from the Latino community? She is running for governor of the great state of Arizona against Kerry Lake. Learn, specifically learn from the Latino community. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't necessarily uh, think about it that way in those terms. I think um, I really value uh, my relationships across the board with, um, with, with different folks. And, um, and I learn all the time from, from people uh, in my life. My sister-in-law, um, she is uh, Latino and uh, her family, uh, I love hanging out with them and uh, practicing my Espanol <laughs> un poquito. Uh, so, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just, it's, um, I learned so much from, from her family, uh, but I think um, it, it it's really hard to separate out Arizona and subtract Latino culture because it's so much a part of who we are as a state. And um, and I and I, um, I I Arizona wouldn't be Arizona without the what the Latino community brings. So there's not one specific lesson you could share with you, other than Espanol. <laughs> uh, it's one third of the state. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, I, I I mean I think there's. There's many lessons of uh, the, the emphasis on uh, family values, uh, hard work. Uh, those are those are something that I value in my own life, and um, you know. Hey, is she just lacking the ability to articulate? Is she just not very smart? I mean, God forbid. I mean, God forbid. The, there are going to be very cynical people watching this show. You're going to say things like, oh, the Latino community is boring or there's nothing, you know, there's nothing that I, I learn in particular from Latinos. Like, what do Latinos have to teach me that I, I couldn't get from, say, African-Americans or Chinese-Americans or Japanese-Americans or, or Jewish-Americans? So is the fault primarily with Katie Hobbs? Or is it that in some states, Latinos tend to be underperforming? So Latinos in Texas and Latinos in Florida tend to perform at a much higher rate per capita than Latinos in California. So Latino doesn't really make much sense. There's, there's virtually nothing that uh, Latinos have in common, right? People from Cuba don't have anything in common with indigenous Mexican Wakakans, the 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 short 
dark people, according to what former Los Angeles County Chair Nuri Martinez. She was saying, you know, bad things, disparaging things about uh, indigenous Mexicans. But Latino is like the, the fakest, gayest category in the world. I mean, there's there's Mexican-Americans, there are Venezuelan-Americans, there are Cuban-Americans, there are Spanish-Americans. They have virtually nothing in common. It, it is trying times like this that we need someone to come along and, and shine a light of truth. So I, I'm really kind of tired of playing Richard Spencer clips, but he's just so damn entertaining and so damn compelling, so damn interesting. So he did a Twitter space two days ago, and... It's a lot of it's fun. Like, I know you don't like me very much, but you're going to vote for me. You know you're going to because of the judges. The judges are great. And he 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 got to them. He realized that he had to get that base. All of those people were on board with Ted Cruz until mm-hmm. then. And those are the people that stuck with him. Mm-hmm. You know, they yeah. are ride or die. Yeah. I think to some extent, it's not necessarily ideological. Although there was definitely like an ideological sort of syncretism, like interfaith dialogue, if you will. But yeah. What defines Trump and what defines, like, the religious right and what defined, you know, the mythologized or, or what made, like, the, the so-called mythologized, you know, Sanders, uh, Sanders-Trump voter, which eventually, in terms of hindsight, uh, turned out to be, you know, the double Obama, then Trump voter, um, right. was the sense of, like, vindictiveness. Like, there, there was, yeah, like, eventually, I, I've been screwed. I, I want mine back, you know. Right. Understanding of, like, total, you know, hatred of, of what exists. And they'd be willing to, like, screw everyone over. And what the religious right i suppose saw in that was like um have you read nate hoffman's piece on the new york times sunday special about like the religionization of uh the american state it's a pretty fascinating read interesting no yeah and, and like you know nate hoffman fairly populist person you know um but i i quite like it for for the fact that you know it pretty clearly explains you know the consequences of secularization in, in the american religious dialogue and that is that there there is this like growing number although definitionally smaller number but like in terms of growing radicalism very very vindictive sort of people that are you know starting to realize that the discourse that they think that a they were right but also b that the discourse is slowly shifting them away from irrelevancy therefore they need this massive like stroke of power therefore they see trump even though he is intrinsically far more secular far more you know um capturing oh yeah him. he's 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 paid for more abortions than you know yeah. <laughs> we can we would be we'd like to imagine sure yeah exactly exactly and, and like and the reason why they align was just sort of out of this like vindictive hatred although mm-hmm. I, I would agree that there was some sort of um agreement uh within the two that more or less melded itself into a almost cohesive ideology yeah well this this reminds me we, i'll go read this piece um this reminds me of um robert jones's uh the decline of white christian america mm-hmm. uh which he published i think in 2016 or 2015 and he was noticing this like really strong trend which is that mainline protestant america was becoming marginalized and that you know i, I think something that we would all agree with which is that we, we've never really had a separation of church and state yeah you know? yeah like you know like we that's in the first amendment okay i get mm-hmm. it but even then it was like honored in the breach basically in the sense yeah. that like uh what was it? the congregationalist church was the, the state church of massachusetts effectively i mean you know mm-hmm. um but beyond that like there was a ultimately a kind of like mainline protestant religiosity that people injected into the government mm-hmm. and so we kind of didn't have to like have smells and bells or like the pope's president or, or something you know like that we we just kind of assumed that a main a main you know a presbyterian episcopalian methodist a mainline protestantism was dominant yeah and and, and now that is not really the case and so <laughs> it's inspiring a, a sort of reaction where you know christians see him as like constantine or like cyrus who was you know inspired by yahweh to lead the, Jew, the jews back to jerusalem where they could build the second temple or like mm-hmm. constantine who was like a horrible 
uh, person generally. He, uh, what did he do? Didn't he? he committed familicide of multiple kinds? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> terrible guy, but kind of like he's our guy. He's our son of a bitch. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and so they, it's this like last ditch effort to bring that back with a vengeance. So whereas like in the 20th century, there was an unspoken mainline Protestantism imbued mm-hmm. in the government. Mm-hmm. Now that's that's no longer the case. And so you've got to bring a sledgehammer. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think that like, I, I think that the sort of deceit here is that like, you wouldn't really truly recognize this like sort of front form. It has to be almost like inversely deduced, I suppose, in the way like, um, you can only sort of like reason it teleologically by looking at past examples of history, which, you know, if you were living in those periods of history, you would never have uh, assumed. But if you turn into Nick Fuentes, you don't hear a lot of discussion about teleology. So uh, Nick Fuentes speaks to about a 100 IQ crowd. Uh, Richard Spencer speaks to about a 120 IQ crowd. Looking at the chat, when I hear, have you read and peace, I brace myself for hardcore midwit boredom. Half Galician doesn't need to bother himself with reading stuff. Luke is at his best when discussing Richard Spencer. Is uh, Richard now out there pimping full Adidas gear? You can now buy Yeezy's Adidas gear at 75% off. (laughs) Half Galician says, I love ripping on the teens. Constantine, Augustine. Well, you know what I love? I love reading stories about those great souls who put the realm of the spirit first. People who took morality seriously. People who took right and wrong seriously. People who are willing to stand up and be counted and to defend transcendent you know, moral codes. All right, people who took God and religion seriously. All right, that's what I love. And for people like me who love who love reading about great souls, who love reading about putting the realm of the spirit first, well... No better place than the 2013 book by Peter Ackroyd, Foundation, the History of England from its early beginnings to the Tudors. And I know I'm talking to fellow champions of chastity right now. So chapter 16, Crime and Punishment at a Convent in Yorkshire in the 1160s, one nun had lost her virginity to a young priest. When her condition became obvious, the nuns interrogated her about the offending man. So this is not live and let live. Who am I to judge? All right, I, I don't want to throw the first stone. So when the nun revealed his identity, the nuns captured him. They took him to the cell of the pregnant nun. She was given a knife and forced to castrate her lover. All right, this is taking the realm of the spirit seriously. This is taking right and wrong seriously. This is taking the Bible seriously. This is taking the, the Christian message, the Christian burden seriously. All right, they forced him, they forced her to castrate her lover, and then and then you think that was it? No. These are people who take the realm of the Spirit seriously. These are people who take right and wrong seriously. So the nuns, the, the champions of chastity, right? they stuffed his genitals into her mouth. So you think, oh, that's it. You know, they, they've taught her a lesson. They've given her a knife. They've made her castrate her former lover, and then they've stuffed his genitals into her mouth. It's, it's all over now. No. It was just beginning. She was then flogged and she was bound with chains in a prison cell. Right, so this is an age when the call of heaven was direct and unequivocal, uh, not like today. Right? These people felt the call of heaven. The spiritual world was preeminent. How I long to live in a world like this. How I long to live in a world where the spiritual is preeminent. And so there was a general indifference then to the fate or sufferings of the physical body. 
So when one English king was asked if he regretted the thousands of soldiers he sent to slaughter, he remarked that they would thank him when they were in heaven. Yes, they would thank him when they were in heaven. The chronicler, after telling the story of the savage nuns, exclaimed, What zeal was burning in these champions of chastity, these persecutors of uncleanness who loved Christ above all things? Don't you yearn to live in a world of the Spirit where people love right and wrong above all things, where people love morality and modesty and chastity above all things, where people place their primary dedication to their religion, and when they find fornicators and adulterers, they just take things into their own hands, like those zealous nuns, those champions of chastity, right? Those people willing to stand up for what's right and wrong, willing to punish the evildoer. I, I, I'm inspired. Right? These stories of physical cruelty would have been familiar to all the people of England in a period where violence was tolerated to a surprising degree. Yeah, there was a ton of violence. There was a ton of murder, like a lot more murder and violence than we have now. Right? There was a ton of torture. Right? There was a ton of maiming. But at least they were spiritual. I mean, at least they took the realm of heaven seriously. Like God was a direct phone call away. Now, yeah, village justice could be savage and peremptory, right? So everyone took weapons with them. I mean, doesn't this sound ideal? Everyone just walking around with weapons, like even small children possess knives. So William Palfrey, aged 11, stabbed and killed the nine-year-old William Geyser. Now, you might say, oh, this is a culture of violence, but this is a culture of God, this is a culture of religion. This is a culture of Christianity. This is a culture of the Spirit. I mean, what does the body matter compared to the eternal joys of being with God in heaven? Now, children, yeah, they were educated with severe physical discipline, but at least they learned about God and morality and right and wrong. Yeah, there was lots of corporal punishment. There was plenty of public whipping for adultery to slander. But there was genuine pleasure from theological arguments, from denunciation of vilification. Right? This is the culture of rhetoric and of the spirit and, and of Christianity. Right? You have this wide vocabulary of scatological abuse. Right? Uh, sexual misdemeanors back then were commonly and loudly publicized. Do you think back then in the 12th century that they would have hesitated about stigmatizing sexually transmitted diseases? Do you think that they would have hesitated to call out the wrongdoers who were spreading, you know, this pox or that pox? No. Back then, there were people of God who were able to call sin by its name. And this is a society of intense high
Ah, you can't hear me. Whoa, my, my words, my words are just dropping there and you didn't get to hear me. So this is a time where sexual misdemeanors were commonly and loudly publicized like on this show. All right. Like on this show, this was a society of intense hierarchy. Like on this show, there's a preoccupation with maintaining a good name. Like on this show, disputes are often settled by fights. The slightest slight can occasion bloody dispute. The smallest incident can provoke violence. One man comes to a hotel where strangers are drinking. Who are these people, he inquired, and for that question, he was stabbed to death. One man was dragged to a local tavern there, and he was obliged to drink a cocktail of beer and his own blood. Well, don't knock it till you tried it. Justices who traveled to Lincoln in 1202 were confronted with 114 cases of murder, 49 cases of rape. There was a popular phrase for a felon to become a wolf's head that anyone may cut down. So a felon could be killed on sight by anyone who encountered him. Right? This, this discourages people from becoming felons. Right? Very different from California today. So, yeah, the life of the nation was harsh, but at least they were spiritual. At least they were godly. Yeah, you had stocks and you had the... the, the the gibbet, gibbet, right? Let him see a priest. Those are the last words of the judge in a hanging matter. If you were convicted in Wakefield, you would be hanged. If you were found guilty in Halifax, your head would be cut off. Thieves apprehended in Dover were thrown over the cliffs. They take right wrong seriously in the 12th century. At Sandwich, they were buried alive. In Winchelsea, they were hanged in the salt marsh. At Halifax, the axe would be drawn up on a pulley, then fastened with a pin to the side of the scaffold. If a prisoner is caught in false possession of a horse or an ox, the animal is led to the scaffold with him. The beast is tied to a cord that held the pin. And at the moment of judgment, the beast is whipped and the pin came out. And these proceedings were accompanied by the plaint of a bagpipe. Now, thieves were not always put to death, all right? Sometimes they were simply blinded and castrated. So one man was accused of malicious wounding. He was given the same punishment. So the relatives of the victim got to perform the blinding and the castration. They threw his eyeballs to the ground and they used his testicles as little footballs. So the severity of these penalties was necessary in a violent society where few offenders were caught. So people were generally forced to witness the performance of these sentences as a deterrent. But they had justice, their trial by water, their trial by ordeal, right? Conducted under the auspices of the church. The accused gets to spend three days in fasting and in prayer. On the third day, in a secluded part of the church, quadrant of water is brought to boiling point by fire. Then the accuser and the accused arranged in two lines opposite one another with the quadrant in the middle. The participants are sprinkled with holy water by the priest. He gets some litanies recited, and then the accused plunges his hand and his arm into the boiling water. If his scalded flesh is then wrapped in a linen cloth, if the flesh is healed after the third day, the accused was pronounced to be innocent. You can't get fairer than that. Right? If the flesh was still burned after three days or ulcerous, then the prisoner suffered the penalty for his offense. Then there was divination by water. Right? Men and women were lowered into a pit of cold water. It was 20 feet wide, 12 feet deep. And if 
the man began to sink. He was deemed to be innocent. If he was guilty, he floated. Now, if he sank, he might drown. Then there was trial by fire. I mean, all sorts of methods of justice. And uh, apparently a lot of violent crime was closely associated with drunkenness. Who would have thought? So you might wonder, why does Richard Spencer sound so sober these days? Well, apparently he's uh, largely given up drinking. Assume that this is what would happen like with uh, Mussolini or Hitler or any of the other various, you know, fascist powers that more or less took this extremely modernistic uh, ideology and sort of melded it with like conservatism. Yeah. And in the same way, you couldn't exactly reason it like front forward with Trump. And there, there is this like sort of odd deceit of history here. And, and to sort of tie it back to the um, original discussion with like Fetterman Oz, about like three months ago, like there was this almost like underlying like anxiety among Senate Republicans that like, you know, Oz was, you know, bound to be defeated. He was trailing the point on um, trailing Fetterman by 20 points. There was a significant fear that, you know, he might be able to pick off rural voters, white working class or like basically. It really speaks well of Richard Spencer that he has such intelligent people contributing to his spaces. I mean, this is good stuff. He set back the Republican coalition for the next 20 to 40 years, just simply from how much of a terrible, like, sort of groomed pick that Trump made, especially after such a contentious primary against Dave McCormick. But it seems like only, like, through these weird acts of God and just, like, slowly but surely, like, getting his footing back that he really should not have done with, you know, the stroke, the, the, the debate. So once you read a few history books on, on kings and queens... Donald Trump doesn't seem so strange anymore. So I'm reading this book by Peter Ackroyd, The History of England Up to the Tudors, and he talks about King John of the Magna Carta infamy. And Ackroyd notes that uh, King John fined the cities of York and Newcastle for not affording him an appropriately grand reception. Come on, doesn't that sound just like Donald Trump? you know his whole pivot towards crime which is in and of itself a completely you know nationwide yeah. phenomenon it, it feels almost as though like you know this is like we're, we're witnessing almost like the the movement of history uh, within this one person that we, we really should not that like you know even if he had the individual agency and the cunning it was not necessarily um all his doing sort of like you know a napoleonic yeah. figure like yeah i like this is i'll add one thing and then you know i can like uh you, uh, you can sort of riff on it but the fact that like he he managed to put like such a massive push on what should be fairly non-controversial you know a refusal to debate that that's like happened for the past 60 years with nixon refusing to debate humphrey but um the, the fact that he was able to push on him until like this happened and then the fact that like this delay you know was in one of the most like prime time areas of television in, in like um you know i think it was between two major college football games so naturally there would be as more eyeballs on it than ever mm -hmm. and the fact that you know over time this gained nationwide steam and attention like it feels almost like, you know, decisive. Like this was like his uh, Austerlitz or something. Like this was like the culmination of all. Okay, chat says, what does Richard Spencer get out of all this? Did someone pay him under the table to turn liberal? Was it the backlash from Charlottesville? No, I, I think this is, that is, Richard Spencer takes himself very seriously. This is a genuine turn for him. And I think much of it was a reaction to how the alt-right was shunning him. Much of it was a, it kind of a breaking down from the opprobrium of general society and, you know, wanting to get above ground and away from the, the freaks and geeks who populated the distant right. I, I believe he came to see the kind of rational, national, racial nationalism that he was espousing. So when you, when you get into a particular ideology with great passion, like Richard Spencer did, you get to see its flaws much more quickly than someone who only does it on weekends. Like Richard wasn't just comfing on weekends. He was comfing 
you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And so he was able to get to the end of the, you know, the white nationalist uh, neo-Nazi thing fairly quickly. And he started looking for a better way. So I think this is a genuine ideological turn on the part of Richard Spencer. It has nothing, nothing to do with uh, being bribed. I, I think he's, he's had, you know, a genuine, you know, road to Damascus kind of uh, change. He, he's wild and entertaining and irresponsible. And that's what, what makes him so compelling. He, he's not, he's not compromised. He's not weighed down by cares and concerns. He just says, you know, whatever occurs to him at the time. And he doesn't mind changing his, his mind the next day. It, it's his wildness and irresponsibility that, that makes him so incredibly compelling. So I think he's a serious, though irresponsible thinker in that he doesn't really consider the consequences of his thought. He, he's not switching his ideas for funding. Like most normal people, he got tired of becoming a pariah. Uh, he likes war because it makes people more serious. He sees himself as an antichrist. He's uh, kind of an edgy dude. All of his triumphs, that, that like you know, he, he would be able to finally corner Fetterman at, at like this major like turning point for his campaign. Yeah. It's also, you know, I, I find it. Um, it... Who are exactly are his followers? I I would hope that his followers are people who appreciate him for what he is. You got to put people in their appropriate genre. Richard Spencer is not someone you want running a nonprofit or a corporation. He's not someone you want checking the engines before the plane takes off. He is a higher IQ shock jock, a contrarian. He is a compelling live streamer and podcaster. That's who he is. You don't you don't turn to such people for careful scholarship. You don't turn to them for responsible leadership. He is what he is. Like do you do you blame Howard Stern for not being a careful scholar? Do you blame a rabbi for not being able to dunk a basketball? Everyone has a niche. So when you, you figure Richard into his appropriate genre, contrarian, podcaster, then he can't disappoint you. It's like uh, Ben Shapiro. He talks very quickly, takes the most conservative positions possible, and that's who he is. He's not some incredible thinker. He's, he's a player in politics, but you're not going to get you know, much originality or depth from him. But he is someone who knows how to play the talk radio podcasting uh, right-wing game. In like the sim like as you were saying in a similar vein as how Trump uh, managed to, you know, turn what was originally like this like almost clown act against Clinton into something that was actually fairly serious, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll riff on this a, a bit. Um I mean, I I wrote this essay and I actually gave a speech in 2016 where I I said Trump is the Napoleon of the current year. And what I meant by that is that, you know, Paleoconservative types or these people, they they want some, you know, I, I don't know, pastor who's written a dozen thoughtful books. So you want to be able to look for a through line with people. So look for a through line in me and, and you'll see in all my twists and turns, there's a yearning to figure out who I am, to find community, a lot of uh, attention seeking, a, a desire for the, you know, adoration or at least access to pretty women. Look for a through line for all of Richard Spencer's twists and turns. Again, you see the, the contrarian impulse, the attention-seeking impulse. Uh, this this is someone who's a professional provocateur, and he's very, very good at it. And you'd be mistaken to look to him as a you know, sane, rational, responsible source of truth.
he's a contrarian and a provocateur and he does it well or some statesman uh to come out of the woodwork and basically say like we, we've got to retrieve the old america and bring it back or so on and i was saying like that's ultimately naive like the only way out is through the yeah. only way out of this is that you have a literal reality show tv star and wrestling competitor with he's had a million affairs you know covered in the new york post like he in a way is the only one who can kind of transform this moment and i you know to go back a little bit what you said about fascism i mean there's no question that fascism was born out of a you know modernist ideology i mean it was born out of like italian futurism yeah and so on and it kind of made its peace with conservatives and you could say i i do think that i agree with robert paxton i mean i i think that fascism is one phenomenon i, I don't think there's a distinction really i mean there obviously are differences but not a real distinction between um national german national socialism and italian fascism um, but both of them had had this modernist atheistic um even kind of nietzschean verve to them and they, they were able to kind of make their peace and i think with trump it was like he had this reality show like clown act quality which now i don't find funny at all but at the mm -hmm. time i just found like unbelievably hilarious you know Brad okay speaking of hilarious check let's check in with uh tucker carlson good evening and welcome to tucker carlson tonight there are a lot of faraway places in this world namibia for example but europe is not one of them europe is where your kids spent junior year abroad europe is an easy flight from the east coast of the united states to pretty much anywhere on the continent and you know this if you've been on vacation in Europe, as millions of Americans have. For the most part, they speak English in Europe. They've got Starbucks and Taco Bell and air conditioning and modern hospitals. It is not another world. So given that, given how closely related the United States is to Europe and has always been, you would imagine our leaders would notice when Europe began to fall apart, especially when the signs were not subtle at all, and they weren't. This summer, Germans began clear-cutting ancient forests to heat their homes. In Poland, families queued up for hours to buy coal, just like they did 150 years ago. In the UK, the government projected that more than 10,000 Britons will freeze to death, will die this winter for lack of heating fuel. Freeze to death. In England, that is not supposed to happen in a first world country. So Europe is moving backward at high speed, and it's not clear where it'll end. So the question is, why is this happening? And the answer for once is a very simple one. The war in Ukraine, that's why it's happening. A huge percentage of Europe's energy came from Russia. Those imports have now been banned, supposedly to punish Vladimir Putin. What's the result of this punishment? Well, the Russian ruble is now far stronger than it was a year ago. The European economy, meanwhile, is collapsing. Europeans are much poorer than they were when the war in Ukraine started. So how is that a victory? for Europe and the West and democracy? Well, that's a fair question. It's an obvious question. But no one in Washington appears to be asking that question. Instead, the Biden administration is doubling down on the self-destructive mistakes that are destroying the European Union. The White House banned Russian oil, natural gas, and coal. It was our moral duty. And then at the same time, the Biden administration crushed domestic oil production here by canceling oil and gas leases. And then, as if that wasn't enough, the Biden administration sold a piece of our strategic petroleum reserve, maybe this country's most important resource, to China. None of this hurt Putin in any way. All of it impoverishes the United States. So what could possibly be the justification for doing that? We've wondered. Anyone who's paying attention has had to have wondered that. Well, this week, Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, of Bethesda, answered that question. 
Russia is an Orthodox Christian country with traditional social values. And for that reason, it must be destroyed, no matter what the cost to us. So this is not a conventional war. This is a jihad. Jamie Raskin said that out loud, but many in Washington agree with him. In both parties, they would like to see World War trans immediately. So, so what is a jihad going to mean for you? Well, the details are stunning. Thanks to the Biden administration's religious war in Ukraine, this country is about to run out of diesel fuel. According to data from the Energy Information Administration, by the Monday of Thanksgiving week, that's 25 days from now, there will be more, no more diesel. So what's going to happen then? Well, everything will stop. That means trucks and trains and barges all unable to move. Farm equipment will shut down. There will be no deliveries because there will be no trucks. There will be no diesel generators. And then, inevitably, our economy will crash because everything runs on diesel fuel. Not on solar panels, not on wind farms, on diesel fuel. Diesel is not a negotiable commodity. You have to have diesel. So what happens when we don't have it? Well, yesterday, Fox's Jackie Heinrich, apparently alone in the White House press corps, asked the White House spokesman, John Kirby, that very question. What's the plan here? We're running out of diesel. John Kirby, standing at the podium, representing the White House, the president of the United States, the administration, the largest organization in human history, the executive branch of government, had no answer. But don't worry, he said, we will be exporting plenty of energy to Europe to help fight that progressive crusade in Ukraine. Watch. What are we doing to increase the supply of diesel, given that the Energy Information Administration said as of October 14th, the U.S. only had about a 25-day supply. You have yeah. the Northeast and, and New York already rationing home heating oil. What are we doing to prepare for the winter and to ramp up supply of diesel? I'll, I'll take the question on the diesel, because I just don't have the, the data on that in front of me. So let me take that, and, and, uh, and we'll get back to you on that. But... But writ large, the, the president has been working very, very hard uh, to make sure that we're uh, that not only are, are are we ready for fluctuations that could come, and of course the prices are going down, and and we think that's important, um, uh, but that we are also doing what we can to help our European friends and partners who are also going to be facing a long cold winter. We have doubled our commitment. The commitment he made in March for natural gas exports to Europe, we've doubled that commitment um, in terms of actual you know, uh, getting things over there, getting natural gas over there. And we are working with foreign suppliers of natural gas uh, and oil to see if we can't help our European partners diversify their own storage and supplies. So just pause and savor the irony here just for a moment, because now everything is irony. They've been telling you for decades since Al Gore left the White House, that the single greatest threat to the world was warming. And because of their efforts to fight warming, you are in danger of freezing. And unlike warming, freezing actually kills people, a lot of people every year. And it will kill people in the West this year, thanks to their efforts to fight warming. Okay. The second thing to notice is the White House spokesman's totally uninterested blasé response to the most basic question anyone could ask, which is what are we doing about the fact we're running out of diesel fuel? And he has no idea, and he's not embarrassed that he has no idea. The problem is at this point, there may not be an answer because there may not be a way to avoid a disaster. Diesel fuel is not just low in this country, it's low in every Western nation that has aligned itself with Ukraine. 
All these nations preparing for World War Trans are running out of diesel fuel. As New York Magazine has reported, the last time there was this little supply of diesel, there were about 3.5 billion fewer people on the planet. Well, that puts it in perspective. So the Biden administration responded, as you know, earlier this year to rising gas prices, which they feared above all because the midterms are coming in two weeks, by tapping the strategic petroleum reserves. But that will not work here. The Northeast Home Heating Oil Reserve contains a million barrels of diesel in case of emergencies. The problem is that demand is so high across the board that according to the Washington Post, even if the Biden administration used every single barrel in that stockpile, that stockpile would be empty in less than six hours. And of course, it's not just diesel that's running out. Jet fuel is up about 23% in just the last month. Kerosene, which if you don't live in New York City, you know perfectly well is used to heat people's homes and keep them from dying, is now close to $7 a gallon. Who heats with kerosene, by the way? Poor people heat with kerosene. And they're the ones who can't get it. $7 a gallon. In New England, people are worried about freezing to death this winter. Here's a local Fox report. West Hartford homeowner Sharona Resnick-Kravitz has been paying for oil to heat her home for more than 35 years. I mean, this is New England. It gets cold here. We're cold. Sharona is a widow living on a fixed income. She says before her husband passed away, they shared the bills. Now she is having to make sacrifices. How are yes. you preparing and trying to figure out what can you sacrifice at this point? Um, food. I go to the grocery store and I'm very frugal about what I buy. She tells me at $6 a gallon, buying oil has become a huge burden. The average home uses 800 gallons of oil per year. That's almost $5,000 at the current rate. This shouldn't be happening in this of all countries. The United States has some of the deepest, by some measures, the deepest energy reserves on the planet. It's our main strength. Cheap energy is the reason this is a rich country. That's the reason. That's why we're exceptional, because we have cheap energy. And this country was energy independent just a few years ago. Now, if you want to fix the economy, you would make this country energy independent once again. You would bring back cheap energy. That will fix the economy quicker than anything else. In fact, it's the only thing that will fix the economy. But the Biden administration, for whatever reason, has done the opposite, depleting our strategic petroleum reserve, for example. They just released another 15 million barrels the other day because they know that's running out. The White House is also begging foreign governments for help in the most humiliating possible way. Biden just went and begged the Saudis in secret for more oil. As The New York Times reported this week, Biden's top aides, quote, thought they had struck a secret deal to boost oil production through the end of the year. But then the Saudi royal family decided not to go along with it. They're not ramping up their oil production. They're doing the opposite. Saudi's oil minister is now telling the West to brace for energy shortages. Watch this. It is my profound duty to make it clear to the world that losing emergency stock may become painful in the months to come. So an energy shortage is not really a debate over whether some dude should be on the girls' swim team. This is adult stuff. Countries rise and fall on the basis of what energy costs. And when there's a real energy shortage, things fall apart. People die, economies collapse, poverty sets in, systemic poverty. Not just in the bad part of town, but in your part of town. So this is a real thing. The problem is the people running the government are children. They 
not only can't admit what they've done wrong, they don't even understand it. Here's Corrine Jean-Pierre, the glass ceiling shattering spokeswoman at the White House, addressing the question yesterday. I'm anxious to get your thoughts on this New York Times report that U.S. officials thought they had a deal with the Saudis before the president went to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia for his meeting with the crown prince. Uh, uh, but they thought they had a deal on oil supplies and oil, uh, price of oil, uh, but uh, that uh, the Saudis backed out of that deal. What can you tell us about So we have been uh, very clear about uh, how we believe uh, parts of that report was mischaracterized, and there has been um, some changes that have been made to that report. Look, we've also been clear that our trip, that the president's trip to the Middle East, was not about oil. Was there an understanding, Corrine, with the Saudis that the Saudis then backed away from? Again, the trip was not about oil. This is embarrassing. She can't even conjugate the verb correctly. This is the spokesperson. It's a joke. She doesn't know what oil is, and she's lying. They're all like that. These people are not capable of running a country this big and this complex, and that's why it's falling apart. Joe Biden is blaming gas stations for high prices. How's Kamala Harris responding to all of this? Well, she's responding to diesel shortage by telling you diesel's bad. Watch. I have a particular fondness, I must tell you, for electric school buses. I love electric school buses. <laughs> On a daily basis, 25 million children in our country every day go to school. On those diesel-fueled school buses. And hundreds, thousands of school bus drivers are driving those buses, which are then these people... These children, these adults, are inhaling what is toxic air. So the lady who never had children is lecturing you about children. The person who's never had a real job is lecturing you about energy policy. The woman who told you masks would stop COVID is telling you about diesel fumes and their effect on your body. This is a joke. The truth is these people are bumping Right smack up against reality. And here's the reality. We have 25 days to avert economic catastrophe. Catastrophe is what will happen if we run out of diesel fuel. That's more important than prosecuting a jihad in Ukraine. It's more important than World War trans. Everything depends on this. And we've got 25 days to fix it. Josh Hawley represents the state of Missouri in the United States Senate. And he joins Hey, I'm going to skip on uh, listening to the interview with Josh Hawley. Okay, let's have a look. Is KMG alive? Yes, he's alive. He had uh, cataract surgery. All right, he's chatting about setting up a rumble. He talks like Lionel Nation. Okay, Tucker is spitting facts. Wild world. Hot Mexican women. Yes. Has Luke had a nice kosher cup of coffee lately? I think I had my last cup of coffee about six months ago. But I didn't sleep well last night. I watched The Good Nurse on Netflix. So that took me from about 7.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. when I was riding my exercise bike and doing my weights and my push-ups. Then I had to see the final episode of The Patient, which has got a nice even-handed portrayal of Orthodox Judaism. 
And so that that was 40 minutes. So that took me to 10, 20 p.m. So normally from 9 p.m. to 10 p.m., I like to calm down by watching a sitcom like Cheers. So normally I go on my Paramount Plus subscription, watch a couple of episodes of Cheers, and I relax and I start nodding off. And then I go to sleep and uh, you know, put on my, my CPAP after taking my, my gram of magnesium and uh, my lemon balm, right, and a couple of Tums. And uh, away I go for for pleasant night's sleep. But uh, the good nurse and then the patient, that's not exactly ideal before bed viewing. So I had a very restless night. And finally at uh, 3 a.m., I was like, oh, let me give up on this. Let me just watch an episode of Cheers. Maybe that will you know calm me down, cheer me up. And then nothing was working. So I got up at 4.14 a.m., which probably happens two times a week probably on average and took a one to two minute cold shower took my modafinil and then made my way to the kitchen and uh, got some mocha green tea powder and uh, mixed up some mocha green tea powder so that's got the the caffeine but it's a much calmer buzz than coffee right because of the l-theanine in it the the caffeine high lasts twice as long l-theanine does something with the way you metabolize caffeine. So the, the caffeine high lasts, lasts twice as long. So with a cup of coffee, I would be up and a bit jittery for three hours. But with the mocha green tea, um, I can ride that high for six, seven hours. Okay, now I'm just uh, sleep deprived. So I want to make sure I have a nice, smooth, smooth uh, takeoff into my sleep tonight. No more watching uh, scary scary tv is luke heading to mexico in la you got to pay eight dollars a gallon for gas in mexico it's two well for most of my driving right clients pay for it so i'm not paying those those uh large gasoline bills by and large so i'm not particularly worried i don't have to worry about uh, paying for heat luke is this tucker hyperbole or are we really this screwed i guarantee you we are not really this screwed i don't know anything about the state of diesel fuel that certainly sounds alarming but just think about the incentives that someone like tucker faces the more you hype how bad things are right the more you hype the drama the more you hype you know we're, we're staring into catastrophe right the more exciting your show is if i was able to make the case look the world's going to end tonight and then gave you 10 reasons why the world's going to end tonight, that would be incredibly compelling. The downside of constantly hyping the drama is that you lose credibility. So, no, I don't think the world's coming to an end. I don't think America is screwed. I think of all the major nations in this world, America far and away is in the best shape. I mean, look at what the American dollar is doing. It's just raping every other currency. So when I came back from Australia... Uh, 76 American cents would get you one Australian dollar. Now it's about uh, 64 American cents will get you one Australian dollar. I mean, you, you go to London and wave a dollar around and people will just come running. I mean, we're, we're basically at pound dollar parity these days. So I think America is going to do, do pretty well. Now, has the Biden administration made a lot of mistakes? I mean, is the Biden administration delusional about the possibilities of, of green energy and the green energy revolution and trying to dial back and discourage fossil fuels yes we are barely 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 
increasing the amount of energy that is provided by green sources. That's really, really hard to do. And over the last 20 years, we get about approximately 2% more of our energy now from renewable green sources than we did 20 years ago. So the progress of green energy is incredibly slow. And so by not encouraging more fossil fuel exploration, by all the the big funding mechanisms, the, the banks all right, essentially walking away from investing in fuel exploration, fuel processing, we, we are going to have significant and unnecessary energy problems because of that. I mean, I'm glad I don't live in the Northeast. So yeah, if you're in the Northeast, things are going to be pretty, pretty grim. Let's hear a happy tune here from Richard Spencer. Talking about dick size during a debate. I mean, just it was just out of control. And Dionysian, and it's kind of like drunken hilarity in a way. Yeah. And, but, and, and he was able to kind of make peace with make peace with the religious right. Mm-hmm. And that's what has allowed him to have this, like, you know, sustainable movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess people like me, we now find ourselves on the outside looking in of that. And, um, I mean, I look at the I look at MAGA like an anthropologist would look at, like, a tribe in the Congo or something. <laughs> I'm just, like, totally objectively distanced from it. I just haven't, uh, it just, uh, I cringe and I just look at it. I just, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, that's just been my experience. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of fascinating, like, I kind of want to get into the head, like, I kind of want to get into the head of, like, the, the people that are sort of, like, leading it, you know, like, um, Peter Thiel, right, like, to some extent, sometimes, like, you know, hearing him speak at, like, all these different events, like, these podcasts, these speeches, like, all, all these other places, like, you have to wonder, like, does he really believe, like, what is his, like, thinking underneath all of that, and, and like, it, it's sort of hard to decipher, and I think this is sort of a categorical, uh, Okay, let's have a look at the uh, chat. Look is experimenting with all these new chemicals. God forbid you need some hot sex so your body can release those much-needed uh, hormones. Forty. Forty traded in his orange flavor, classic orange crystal light, for some pounded, gr- powdered green tea. The life that Luke lived in Apricot Sky is way better than today. He was walking on the beach with hot chicks and dancing shirtless. Now he just does a podcast. Yeah, Luke has protested doing walk and talks. He thinks it's uh, antisocial. Right? People don't like to see someone live streaming as they go down the street. They have to move out of the way. It takes a significant price on other people. It hurts others. But hey, 40, no one expects privacy at the beach. Turn, turn around. Perspective for every young major contributor to this. Like, what is the sort of end game here? Like, how many people actually are true believers? And, and like, going at that, you know, what is really the true belief? Right. And, and this is something. Okay. I know what you want to know. What the hell is going on with uh, Chuck Todd? All right. Chuck Todd from NBC News. What's the latest with good old Chuck Todd? It dawned on us this morning, how long has it been since we checked in with our old friend Chuck Todd at NBC News? Quite a while. We saw this on the internet this morning. It's not new. We hadn't seen it before. It's worth seeing. Here's Chuck Todd. Please get vaccinated. If you know someone who's not vaccinated, find a way to convince them to get vaccinated. Literally, the only people dying are the unvaccinated. And for those of you spreading misinformation, shame on you. Shame on you. People are needlessly dying. 
That's not true. More people who are vaccinated are dying than people who are unvaccinated. Now, that's not because the vaccine is so ineffective. It's that uh, you know older people are more likely to get vaccinated than younger people. So, yeah, I've taken the latest vaccine. The one that wasn't tested on human beings was only tested on mice. I've taken it. I've never felt stronger. All right. I, I took that new vaccine. Now, I think I had COVID about two months ago, and it took me a, until about a week ago to make a 100% recovery. But just yesterday, I was out and about on the streets. I found a tree branch. I was able on, uh, I think, four attempts to do eight half pull-ups, right? Eight half pull-ups. So that's like four real pull-ups. I mean, that's how strong I feel with this new COVID vaccine booster. My fifth COVID shot, my third booster. Yeah, it's never been tested on human beings, but I follow the science. I mean, Kaiser Permanente recommended that I take this. I, I took it. Kaiser recommended that I, I get the shingles vaccine. I took it. Kaiser recommended I get the flu vaccine. I, I took it. I, I follow the science, bros. Because of your misinformation. Think about it. I don't know how some of you sleep at night who are doing this for a living on television. <laughs> Literally, the only people dying are the unvaccinated. Shame on you. You're killing people. Now, that was last year. And, of course, now the data are, because it's plural, as we scientists know, the data are in. It turns out old Chuck Todd. Okay, I better stop this. I don't want to get uh, any any misinformation here. I, I'm afraid that Tucker's going to say something uh, critical or negative or, or traffic in misinformation uh, about vaccines. So I, I just got to got to stop misinformation right nobody works harder than i do to keep a handle on uh, misinformation but uh, what the heck is going on in michigan point lead over her rival tudor dixon that lead has evaporated a new poll from trafalgar shows this race tied within the margin of error even how'd that happen in a democratic state like michigan well Partly because Tudor Dixon did a great job exposing the fact that Gretchen Whitmer is a liar and incompetent and was particularly awful during the pandemic. She did it Tuesday during the debate between the two of them. Watch this. We made quick decisions to save lives and studies show we saved thousands. I am proud of that. But while I was getting death threats, saving lives during COVID, my opponent was sowing conspiracy theories. She was saying that kids couldn't get impacted. No need for masks. If she had been governor during COVID, thousands more people would have died. Mrs. Dixon? If that were at all true, why would I have gotten the vaccine myself? The governor is being dishonest once again, but that's what you do when you don't have policies to run on, when you killed more seniors than almost any other state, when you were told to stop the policy, but you kept it going, when you could, had such extreme unemployment fraud that you lost $8.5 billion worth of taxpayer money. She crushed our economy. Saved wow. lives? Such extreme unemployment. Look at that. I mean, look at those nice broad shoulders. Look at that nice long neck. Right? There's no unnecessary tension in this neck, even though she's performing under pressure. I mean, Tudor Dixon, she is beautiful. And uh, not, not a lot of excess tension here in her forehead or in her face. You know, very tasteful makeup. 
Okay, let's let's check out the. Okay, so see Gretchen Whitmer is pulling down. Let's Watch have a look this. at her. Alexander we Tech made Day. quick decisions. Okay, so notice when she says we made that she's pulling down and in on herself and tensing. Look at all that facial tension. Look at how her neck's disappearing as she's tipping forward, which is exerting strain on her spine. All right, she's pulling down and in to make her points. Quite different from the lovely upward trajectory of Tudor Dixon. I, I never heard of the name Tudor Dixon before, but I'm becoming a big fan of her political philosophies. To save lives. And studies show we saved thousands. I so I think Gavin Newsom was right. He, he shut down California before any other state. So I think that was by and large a good decision. But the idea of, you know, finding and arresting people who went paddleboarding off the coast for breaking the lockdown, that's what happened in Los Angeles. All right, that was ridiculous. Closing the playgrounds was ridiculous, which they did in California. Closing beaches was ridiculous. Uh, closing hiking trails, all right? You want to encourage people to get outside during an influenza pandemic. So a lot of stupid decisions also carried on in California and elsewhere. I am proud of that. Notice how she keeps pulling down and in. She's lost all length in her neck. But while I was getting death threats. See, oh, all the tension around her jaw around her eyes, in her face, like pulling down and in, all sorts of unnecessary compression. Saving lives during COVID. My opponent was sowing conspiracy theories. So notice how her left shoulder is higher than her right shoulder. And look at all that tension there in her neck. She was saying that kids couldn't get impacted. No need for masks. If she had been... Well, kids are at very, very low risk of having serious consequences from getting COVID when compared to people over 60. And governor during COVID, thousands. So notice how her left shoulder is about an inch lower than her right shoulder. So she's, 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 that means she's walking around like this, right? And I guarantee you that she's got anterior pelvic tilt with her, probably her, her right hip, her right pelvis is tilted forward. And then she's got one shoulder watch higher than another. Then the central nervous system to keep the eyes level, it's got to wrench her back. So I guarantee you she suffers from a ton of back pain. Tudor Dixon, I don't think, suffers from a ton of back pain. She doesn't have to desist from doing all sorts of very pleasurable daily activities because of back pain. More people would have died. Mrs. Dixon? If that were at all true, why would I have gotten the vaccine myself? Look at that lovely long free neck i mean she's got a neck like a giraffe and I, I mean that in the most possible sense look at that her neck is about three times the length of gretchen whitmer right when, when you've got a long free neck your head can just pivot around like notice how her shoulders are even notice there's very little tension in her neck very little tension around her eyes and around her lips what a woman the governor is being dishonest once again. So notice in comparison to Gretchen Whitmer, the Tudor Dixon is not pulling down and in. Just a very little, you know, dip compared to the massive crunch that Gretchen, Gretchen Whitmer exhibits. But that's what you do when you don't have policies to run on. When you killed more seniors than almost any other state. When you were told to stop the so this is very serious stuff. And a normal person would really be dramatically pulling down and in. But not Tudor Dixon. I mean, I haven't seen a neck like this in ages. Look at this beautiful long neck. I mean, this thing is just absolutely gorgeous.
Wow, Tudor Dixon. Policy, but you kept it going. When you could, had such extreme unemployment fraud that you lost eight and a half billion dollars worth of taxpayer money. She crushed our economy. Saved lives? <laughs> As we've chronicled pretty exhaustively on this show, of all governors, Gretchen Whitmer is the last person who should be saying that because it's a lie. May the words burn in her mouth. Tudor Dixon is running against her for governor of Michigan and may win. She joins us. Tudor Dixon, thanks so much for coming on. Congratulations on these numbers. Amazing. So look at this nice, long, free neck. I mean, notice her neck is about three times as long as Tucker Carlson. Like Tucker Carlson is losing his neck. Like his head is kind of retreating back into his body. It's going to set him up for a lot of you know back pain. But she is poised. I mean, how is this woman so poised? Look at that head way up there. Look at that nice long neck, that, that free and, and easy face, like the genuine smile. Amazing. Why do you think that you are now tied with the Democratic governor in a Democratic state? Thank you. I think I'm tied with her because our message is better. You heard her saying that she didn't do the things that she did. She came out and she said schools were locked down for three months in the state of Michigan. They were locked down for two years. In fact, universities were locked down for almost. But look at that. Look at all that facial tension there by Gretchen Whitman. Notice how she's, she's almost completely lost her, her neck, right? Just pulling down and in tense, tense, tense. But uh, Tudor Dixon, nice long neck. Tucker, you're losing your neck, man. You need some Alexander technique. You need to allow your head to release forward and up, bro. Two years. And I think she lost a lot of those young people that said, wait a minute, we paid for school. We weren't even on campus. We exposed her lies and we've exposed the fact that she's been. So every time I see Gretchen Whitmer, she's just she's just filled with with facial tension, tension in her neck. Like, uh, you know, her left shoulder higher than, than her right shoulder terrible for the state. This is not four years. She's been in government for 20 years. She has said she's riding with Biden. We know that from her energy policy. She's crushed the energy system in the state of Michigan. She's also has a, a rise in crime that you would not believe. We are top 10 in crime in the nation. We are bottom 10 in education. There is nothing she can come back and say, I did. Wow. I, I wonder, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. I suspect that uh, Michigan's high rates of crime and low rates of educational attainment are not primarily the result of democratic policies, but rather are primarily the result of uh, certain demographics. Did this and it was great. She couldn't say it in the debate because there is nothing. She can't say it now. She's now coming out and trying to attack me as an extremist because I am, I don't know, against kids get, being forced to get the vaccine. And guess what? I absolutely am. She says books aren't dangerous and refuses to answer to the parents in the state of Michigan who are saying, we want to go back to the basics of reading, writing, and math. And they want that because our test scores just came back and they're so horrendous. We went down twice as many points. Yeah, I don't think that's primarily about uh, Democratic Party policies. So let's get back to the reason discussion on the Richard Spencer show. I think they are desperately afraid of not having one of them in charge. And, and this is where the 
election itself means so much to them. And why I do think yeah. that J6 is actually the beginning of something. I, I don't think it's the end. Yeah. I, I think they're going to do shit like this, like going forward, or shit like that, rather going yeah. forward. Yeah. It's just that kind of, I mean, I think it goes back to what we were saying before, where so much, there, there was a, a white Protestant, mainline Protestant um, Christianity that was just assumed in the government. You didn't, you know, you could say, God bless America, or God bless the troops. You didn't have to wear anything on your sleeve. It was everyone assumed that the other guy was also a mainline Protestant. In some weird way, the one the person who kind of threw a little bit of a curveball was Jimmy Carter as a kind of evangelical. But anyway, um, and we've gone away from that. And so now you have to just like vehemently assert it. And I, I do think that they are, there, there is this kind of terror that they have about someone on the screen in the president's office that isn't like them, that doesn't kind of appeal to them. Um, yeah. They, they will do it. Yeah. I mean, I, they'll, they'll definitely kill to keep that going. They, they have the power, the passion, religion, and it's, you know, but go ahead. And this sort of like anxieties, I guess, scales. Like, think of the people that hold the cultural or political capital within like the GOP, and, like the used car dealer in Omaha, Nebraska, you know, the gas station yeah. clerk or the gas owner in, you know, some bum place in, you know, Chattanooga, Tennessee or something. You know, they're, they're not necessarily foaming at the mouth at this, but they, they sort of represent the same thing as like Richard Nixon, who I think like is, I, I suppose, the great, the, the most, the highest symbol of what you would consider like that sort of like, uh, presumed uh presumed uh, assumption of, of christianity so mm -hmm. this guy who you know ruled like had the whole world at his palms seemed like this very secular person who you know governed very a religiously but there was a deep almost childhood embedded um sense of like calvinistic doom that yeah. was in there that Waker. like yeah yeah like this very deterministic uh, means of, of interpretation to, to such an extent that I, I think Peter Thiel described this as a definitive pessimism in the sense that he knew the outcome that the world would experience and therefore he had to like sort of fight against it in almost like this Jupiterian fashion. And sort of like what Macron intended to do seeing like the rise of populism with Penn in, in like, you know, seizing the apparatus of the state and trying to, you know, vest against it. And yeah. I, I suppose in like a Hegelian sense, like this uh, secondary approach to this is it, sort of like this very like... Yeah. I have some like, conservative friends who would talk about uh, basically that they need more people like Thomas Sowell into the uh, movement, basically, right? That we could get more like black conservatives and black libertarians. But I just find it kind of funny because like we haven't ended up with any Thomas Sowells. Instead, you've ended up with like Candace Owens, Kanye West, and so on. Yeah, it's kind of strange, but I guess it's understandable in a way too, right? Yeah, no, that, that's actually very true. You don't, you haven't ended up with like genuine libertarians and corporate shells. You've ended up with Candace and Kanye, who are kind of like reiterating the alt-right troll wars in this kind of, you know, all that stuff, like uh, white lives matter, t-shirts and whatever. And, and just this kind of like weird anti-Semitism that on the one hand is kind of casual anti-Semitism, like Jews run Hollywood or whatever. And then on the other hand is this kind of like weird theological kind of thing. That was totally all right And the, the fact that these African-Americans are the ones promoting it is really remarkable. Yeah, it's odd. Um, I mean, at the same time, it's understandable, right? Like, you know, someone like Thomas Sowell, his ideas just seem so dated and bland compared yeah. to what someone like Kanye West is saying, or someone like Candace Owens, who obviously has a lot of appeal, despite how absolutely absurd she might be. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I, I don't obviously watch this stuff too much, but I, I remember seeing something this past summer with Candace Owens. She had all of these panelists on and they were just reacting to lives of TikTok videos basically 
Right, right. And it was like John Doyle. And it was people who resembled Matrontes. I, I think that like Elijah Sheikher or whatever. Like it was these people who kind of like took the very worst aspects of the alt-right and then like evaporated any kind of like Richard Spencerism, you know, the Nietzschean stuff. Just obviously got rid of that. And but then kind of like picked up on the trolling vibe. And that is mainstream now. Like that has won. You know, even to the point where like Kanye is doing I mean, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it is funny, though, because I, I, I'm not sure if, like, the conservative movement in general, whatever that is, or maybe, like, the Republicans, the MAGA, whole thing, they're not really sure how to respond to it. So it's almost like they're not responding to it at all. I mean, some of them have kind of pushback, but even, like, Ben Shapiro, like, these people, they're not really sure what to say. No, because they're, what they're used to is basically reacting to Ilhan Omar saying something about 9-11. And they're being like, oh, look, anti-Semitism has reared its head again, you know. This time in the form of the progressive movement, who are, you know, paving the way for Hitler, you know, <laughs> right, inherited right. Hitler's legacy. I mean, all this just kind of Dinesh D'Souza style nonsense. But now it's coming from them. And yeah, I mean, I definitely think we're going to see more of that. I, I, don't, I don't think anyone's going to learn the lesson from Kanye, which is that you lose just millions of dollars immediately if you do this kind of stuff. Uh, I, I think the kind of like dam has broken in the sense of normal people engaging in this kind of goofy, grotesque version of white nationalism. Uh, I think that's just where we're at the start of it. I think we're going to see more Kanye stuff. Yeah, I think maybe it was Steve Bannon who said that, right? Basically, like, fill the air with just, like, shit, basically. Yeah. And we and no one knows how to respond to it. And even the left is, of course, they're criticizing Kanye West. But if you actually watch the responses, they're being a bit careful, too, because, you know, he's black. So yeah. they're not sure what to really say. And it's just made this whole, like, kind of awkward, all these awkward interviews going on with him. And, yeah, it's just basically filled the air with shit, just indifferent shit. Well, that was Steve Bannon's, you know, uh, like, motive. I mean... He, he, he said in this notorious statement to Sarah Posner, I believe, which was that Breitbart is the platform for the alt-right. What did he mean by that exactly? He didn't exactly mean that they're going to promote Spencerism or something like that. What he meant was that we're going to have a comment section that is totally nuts. It's just going to be 4chan in the comment section and that we're going to be able to kind of guide this and, you know, move the lever just slightly up and down and kind of push that Dionysian energy towards a Republican victory. And even though that didn't work out exactly for Steve Bannon himself, I, I do think that like that type of vibe is what is going to be is what is going to define conservatism going forward. Like all of this like national conservatism stuff, this is just all like a gloss, like a, a like rationalization or something of what is actually going on, and it's just this like false kind of phony ideology just like superimposed over a bunch of shitlords. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be funny to uh, watch them try to crawl out of it because, like, they may crawl out of it with, you know, someone like Governor DeSantis or something. Just Oh, Governor DeSantis is doing uh, pretty well. Republicans are doing pretty well right now. So Richard and company just crapping on the Republicans as a big red wave is about to hit America. All right, what's going on with Drag Queen Story Hour? Neutralizing children, and unfortunately some people are, what would you do? You might have a Drag Queen Story Hour at a library or a school, that's where you would indoctrinate and sexualize children. It's happening across the country. Here's one example from the Aspen Hill Library in Rockville, Maryland, this summer. I am a drag queen, female impersonator, a woman. <laughs> this is, if you're a drag queen and you know it, if you're a drag queen and you know it, strike a pose. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a drag queen and you know it, shake your bum. 
If you're a drag queen, you know it, shake your bum. <laughs> if you're a drag queen, you know it, and you really want to show it. If you're a drag queen, you know it, shake your bum. Woo! So the deal always was, do what you want, just leave the kids out of it, because child molestation is a crime. But they're not leaving the kids out of it at all. It's happening everywhere. Chris Rufo has spent a month digging into Drag Queen Story Hours. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He joins us tonight. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. What did, what did you find in the month you spent looking at this? Well, I found that parents' instincts is largely correct. A lot of parents are wondering, why is an adult male uh, putting on women's clothing uh, and dancing and talking about sexual themes with other people's children, not only in libraries, but also uh, in schools and other public institutions? Uh, but they're scared to say anything because they're worried about offending the sensibility of many of the administrators and left-wing ideologues who police uh, speech uh, under the umbrella of LGBTQ tolerance. Uh, but the reality is quite simple. The academic queer theorists and the people who founded the Drag Queen Story Hour movement have left a trail of evidence in academic papers and manifestos that say the goal is very clear. They want to sexualize children. Uh, they want to subvert the middle class family. Uh, and they want to uh, basically eliminate the, what they call the sexual hierarchy uh, in favor of creating a sexual connection between adult and child, which has, of course, long been the, the, the kind of final taboo uh, of the sexual revolution. It, it was always the most basic taboo in our society. Stay away from the children creep or you will regret it. Why would any parent allow their child to be sexualized by an adult man with a fetish for kids? I mean, two reasons. I think the first reason is quite simple, is that people have been mystified and bought into this idea that it's somehow an expression of tolerance and exploration and gender creativity. Uh, but the second thing, we've seen this already in New York City. It's mandatory. Uh, New York City public schools have organized dozens of these performances uh, as young as elementary school. These are mandatory. Parents, in some cases, were not even given the, the chance to opt out of them. Uh, and so this is long gone from what one conservative commentator called a, quote, blessing of liberty to something that is now being subsidized, subsidized and forced onto kids uh, by the state itself. It's something that uh, people should trust their instincts on. Uh, people should push back against this. And of course, people should arm themselves with the literature and the people in their own words who have advocated for this uh, uh, deeply disturbing sexualization of children. Yeah, people should definitely arm themselves. I agree with that. This is keep the kids out of it, period. Chris Rufo, thank you. Wow, Chris Rufo, I mean, what, what a huge impact he has had on America and for the good. So he, he doesn't have, say, Richard Spencer's philosophical abilities. Chris Rufo is just doing solid, important, powerful work, making this country a better place. Good on you, Chris. Good on you, mate. Back to Spencer. That's where how you are now apparently or superficially what would seem like an establishment Democrat liberal supporter. Can you well, explain that to me? Yeah, I mean, I, I am illiberal philosophically speaking, and I, I think my philosophical... Wait, how on earth is Richard Spencer a, a liberal philosophically speaking, not just tactically or pragmatically? A liberal means that you believe people are basically good. Liberal means that people can just use their reason to figure out what, what's right. A liberal believes that uh, we are primarily individuals born with certain inalienable r 
rights as opposed to a nationalist who believes that we're born into a tribe or a nation and that whatever rights the tribe or nation can afford to us will vary depending upon time and circumstance. So I think it's much more important to understand ourselves as members of a tribe or members of a nation, members of a community, rather than as disparate individuals born with certain inalienable rights, which will be taken away at any time, as we saw with with COVID. So that's... I, I just don't think that that holds up very well. Radicalism, you could say, has, has deepened as I get older. Okay. But then, in a way, my day-to-day politics has, has become different. Um, I guess you could say on one level it's a, a Hobbesian bargain where I simply will support the people who are going to maintain order the best. Oh. And I, you know, I, I, I ultimately see Joe... Okay, so that's a conservative traditional perspective. You support those who will maintain order the best. Biden, as a reasonable centrist person, um, leading a party that... He's not governing as a reasonable centrist. He's governing as FDR. He's tried to remake America. So he is governed overwhelmingly from the left, not as a reasonable centrist. Could go off the rails, um, but someone who has actually handled American decline in about the best way that could be handled. Uh, and I would include... Certain- this idea that, uh, number one, that America is in decline, America is going to be more powerful vis-a-vis other countries uh, over the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Right? America is rising in relative power. So that's wrong. And the idea that Joe Biden is the best person to manage America's decline. Certainly the Afghanistan withdrawal in that. Um, I think that was a the best thing that he could do. And it was shitty, but it just had to be done that the you know, you had to rip the Band-Aid off. It's, uh, mm. uh, but Richard, you know, don't, don't you think that a lot of the uh, moves that the declining American Empire is doing at the moment are escalatory with regards to Russia and China? And doesn't that seem like not the way to manage decline? No, I, I think that a neo-Cold War is generally a good thing. And I think it's going to revive a certain kind of centrism. This is at least my hope, um, mm. is that there has to be a kind of fear of death in the air. There has, there has to be a fear of death in the air. A uh, uh, Cold War is a good thing to be that prospect of being annihilated for people to gain control of themselves and be more sold. There has to be a prospect of being annihilated for people to gain control of themselves. Surely there are better ways for individuals to gain control of themselves. Sober and serious about matters. I mean, this kind of fear and anxiety comes with an enormous price too. I mean, war comes with an enormous price. We're risking World War Three right now, right? We're risking nuclear annihilation. We are risking not just tens of millions, hundreds of millions of deaths. I mean, is that what we really need to you know, take life seriously? Uh, so I, I, I think that that is actually a, a good thing for the West. And I, I think it could kind of like, I, I, first off, I think there are beneficial things to NATO expansion and just like the, re, uh, the revitalization of NATO, like the f- refinding its raison. It is distracting us from our primary opponent, which is China, right? Our biggest enemy right now is China. Russia is very much a declining empire, right? Russia is no threat, essentially, to the United States. We have elevated Russia into a threat by essentially going to war with Russia. We're on the verge of outright war, including nuclear annihilation with Russia. I, I don't see why expanding NATO and getting caught up in a battle over Ukraine, which is nothing, zip, zero, zilch, to do with American national interests. I fail to see, Richard, why this is a good thing. In the sense that there is a monster, you know, to the east that we must defend against. Uh, 
Russia is not a monster to the east that we must defend against. It's just another nation pursuing its self-interest. I mean, you'd think as a liberal, you would not be thinking in terms of monsters and bad guys and good and evil. Whereas we've had 30 years of an identity crisis with NATO. And so I do think that that's good. And I, again, I absolutely do not trust Republicans to handle this type of situation. Yeah, the, the penis in the locker room right now, guys, is China. It's not Russia. Which, which monster are you calling Russia or China monster or both? I think both are monsters, yeah. But don't they just want to look out for their people in the same way that we in the West want to look out for our people? Like, um, what gives the West um, um, mandate to police the entire world over other, you know, if you, if you want a Cold War, you want multipolarism, which I think was what we had during the Cold War. So shouldn't we try and work, out, work with China and Russia to, to um, create a new multipolar no, I mean, the multi, you're right, we had a, bi a bipolar, and then it kind of became multipolar at the end of the Cold War. I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, but no, conflict is what brings that about. I mean, oh. with, after 90, 1991, we did have a kind of unipolar moment. I think Proudheimer was correct in, you know, in, in calling it by that name. And um, I, I think if the irony of all this, I mean, the, the irony of all of these things, I mean, like, invading, uh, invading Ukraine has revitalized NATO and it literally created NATO expansion. And mm. this conflict, so it created everything that Putin most feared. And mm. in this kind of like conflict, which is natural, um, there is going to be actually more of a bipolar or multipolar world. I'm not, I'm not positive that Russia and China are going to link arms and fight against the West. I think that's a bit of a fantasy. Um, but mm. yeah, I would say this very strongly. Um, Russia is also like facing its own decline and it's facing its own illegitimacy. R mm. Russia, as the bastion of Soviet communism, had a tremendous amount of legitimacy with intellectuals. I think it's, it's facing its own serious issues mm. uh, right now. I don't want to live in Russia. I think Russia is a plutocratic society in the literal sense of that word, of a, uh, mm. a society based on Pluto. That is, you rip, you find things under the earth. And you, that's how you become rich. I, okay. I don't want to live in Russia. I but, but Russia is kind of like a, I don't know, like this old broken down car or something that was mm. once like the coolest thing around and now is this kind of, you know, fantasy of itself. When was Russia the coolest thing around? I don't remember that time. China, I really actively would not want to live in a Chinese oh. society or a Chinese-led world. And okay, if that's true, then you want to face up to China is our greatest geostrategic, geopolitical adversary, right? Why would you not want to maximize your resources to holding down China rather than Russia, which poses much less of a threat. I'm not sure they have the imagination to achieve that, but I, and I think that's a serious thing, but I do think they, they certainly have the power to achieve something like that. And I really don't want to live under Chinese hegemony at all. Um, Russia, I don't think has the power or really the imagination, but China mm. has the power. And I, I do see that as a serious looming threat that needs to be contemplated and confronted. Right. I just, I just think it, I don't know. So basically what you're saying is that we've reached, your, your day-to-day -day politics have changed because we've reached a, reached a crisis moment in yeah. the action. All right. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's quite something to see. Like some of your, if you don't mind me saying, I mean, with all due respect, some of your takes, they're just so, so shit <laughs> oh my God. But I, I actually can't tell if you're being like ironic half the time now, or if you, act, but it sounds like you're, that, but that's just, I just, it's the, just the weirdest about not weird that's a really um, unimaginative word, but it's, it's okay weird. to call me weird. I don't, I'm not offended. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, like, well, thanks for how are things your... in uh, how are things in Ireland? Ah, uh, you know, see, I think from a European perspective, like Amer I think Putin thinks in those ways. I, I think he, you know, when he gave that speech, mm. and that's not to say that or something, and it was mm. but Russia quite. Uh, yeah, so but... it's just a kind of intractable question. But um, yeah, I, I do. I understand. I don't think Putin is irrational. I think Putin is acting rationally, and he's obeying a kind of like geographic almost imperative by mm. 
um, by taking but, over Ukraine. Yeah, but ninety percent of the Russian population are in the west part of Russia within. And chat says divorcing China is inflationary. Absolutely, that's true. Question is, is it still in America's best interests? Right, you, you may divorce yourself from somebody and pay a stiff price for it, but it might still be in your best interest. It might be much more devastating to China than it is to the United States. Within Europe, and they have a European culture. So it's, um, I think, I, I think Peterson is right that it's a, you know, it's a civil war in the West, and like that's a tragedy, surely. Well, but, but Putin, whatever you want to say about Putin's ideology, he doesn't think mm. like that. I mean, like Michael McFall, okay, the guy is laughing at intelligence. Uh, uh, I know, I know, I know. But he relayed a anecdote that I think is mm. quite telling, which was that Putin pointed to his skin and said, see, this is a, an illusion. You think we're white like you. We're not white. We're uh. Russian. Now, this is very, goes in contrary to a reported meeting of Brezhnev with Margaret Thatcher on a boat, of all things, um, mm. where he grabbed her by the hands and said, the real question is whether the white race will survive. And Maggie Thatcher was supposedly like taken aback because she's like, oh, the white race, what does that even mean? There are families and entrepreneurs. There, are no, there is no race. Like, she, it was just mm. like, she didn't get it in a way that like the Soviet actually did get it. And um, so I don't think Putin thinks in those ways. I, I think he, you know, when he gave that speech and he was like, we're going to get rid of all these Western liberal shit libs, basically. And yeah. we're going to spit them out like a, we spit out a fly that comes into our mouth. I mean, things become simpler for him when you create this boundary, you know, like, it, it, there's no more ambiguity. It's just full-on hostility. Now, mm -hmm. I think he very well might have contemplated that perhaps we could invade Ukraine and it'll be just like Georgia in 2008 or it'll be just like Ukraine in 2014 where there's some outrage in the West but nothing really happens. And, you know, two years later, you're invited to the G8 summit, whatever. But I think he might have kind of known that this was a final step and it was just shutting things down. It's like, we're not going to have this ambiguity, ambiguity anymore. And if mm -hmm. you Western girly men want to leave, then good riddance. You know, we don't ultimately need you. You know, we, we you know, as actually someone who is on, who's, um, who's, he's on the call right now, but he's talked a lot about this in a uh, detailed way. It's like, you don't need this huge population if you have a plutocratic society, as I described, like you're, you're pulling things out of the ground. You don't need all of these people and you don't need this flourishing sector and you don't need like the, not the 1%, but like the 10%, you know, the people who are doctors and lawyers and whatever. You don't need any of that. Yeah. And that just brings ambiguity. So I, I think in some ways he sees a kind of stability in a neo-Cold War. And again, what, what we know of Putin is that he is horrified. Um, whether he's a communist or not remains to be seen, or a Marxist or not remains to be seen. Doubtful, in fact. But he no, just, he's not. yeah, he just is horrified by the notion of the Soviet collapse. And this kind of makes it clear and strong and, in a way. Um, well, I mean, he just appears to be looking out for the interests of Russia. You know, I mean, and his speeches that he's given recently, he's been... I don't think there's been any ambiguity in his speeches. He's, he said how he uh, apprehends the world. And, you know, I don't know, do we need to say his ideology is exactly such and such a thing, but he's, he's you know, says he's advocating for multipolarism and that the U.S. is preventing multipolarism or the U.S.-led uh, West is preventing it. And, I, you know, I'm all for empire, but you can't have a global empire when you have other great powers in the world. So you have to, at some point, negotiate with them. And it, to, to my, from my perspective, it would seem that the U.S. especially is, just does not want to relinquish that mantle that it achieved after 1991 and that is why we have this conflict and... I, I get that but like in some ways we're going back to mm. multipolarism like yeah but what... down uh, down a warlike path though we, why this is my point it's why does why do we have to i get the definitely conflict thing. is natural mm. with unnatural is peace mm. well <laughs> okay well look you've ex 
explain the position. So I understand, at least I understand you now, because I was like, okay, Richard has gone insane. So, uh, but now I understand. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, yeah, I appreciate the talk. Um, okay, yeah. Um, and, uh, and actually, yeah, that's the thing. Because, day, you know, I, yeah. God, I really want to visit Ireland, so uh, I'll, huh. I'll follow you. Maybe, uh, maybe we'll uh, link up at some point in the future. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay, thanks, Richard. Yeah, thank you for speaking. Okay, one more quick. I'll let History Speaks come in, and then um, that will be the Okay, so History Speaks. We've done a lot of shows together. He is a PhD student at London School of Economics, Matthew Gabriel. He does a lot of uh, debates with Holocaust deniers. So he's a free market, but uh, conservative, but still fairly multicultural kind of guy. PhD student here talking with Richard Spencer. And let's keep it brief because I'm getting a little sleepy. History Speaks. Hey, uh, Richard, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so I listened to you, Richard, and so many of the premises on which you, and I'm the uh, the, the genuine shitlib, not the ironic shitlib, the genuine shitlib of this of this group. So be you know be ready for quite a triggering any residue of all right. You're, you're welcome here. Richard, I listen to you, and so many of the premises on which you're basing your arguments implicitly that you don't want to live in Russia, uh, that the U.S. Is a, is a pretty good place to live, that the U.S. I think you implicitly say seem to think that the U.S. deserves some rebuttable, not like categorical, obviously, but rebuttable presumption of loyalty and foreign uh, entanglements, and these views just seem com- utterly incompatible with the white nationalism, if you will, and broader alt right ideology that you were earlier professing. I mean, the United States is at this point fundamentally and irrevocably, barring some kind of boomer secession movement, which I don't see as plausible, a multiracial liberal country. I mean, liberalism is the founding revolutionary ideology of the country. And I mean, even like most MAGA supporters when it comes to diversity or whatever, probably most MAGA supporters are either non-white or like married to non-whites at this point. So, and the fact that you have made your peace with and are actually supportive of to some extent, with some measure of skepticism, this liberal uh, society that is, of course, also multiracial, and it's great that you have. You should be supportive of the U.S. to a you know reasonable extent, um, and you're you're opposed to its illiberal foes. It just seems like you're close to repudiating your background, but you want to you, then you then you want to kind of cling to these uh, to these notions that somehow this is about the, the EU is about uh, the white race and, and, and so forth. But it just it just seems to me that you're close to accepting the fact that even if you obviously don't buy into the academic taboo woke conception of, of 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 race relations in the country that nevertheless through this interesting combination of different races and ethnic groups we've created a pretty interesting and and compelling and entertaining society and it's worth defending and it's, it's superior to white nationalism or illiberalism or whatever the alt-right ideology is so well okay what is white nationalism because i i think that's an open question and i i think that in in 2016 as expressed via the alt-right white nationalism was a kind of hyper conservatism so it was like a hyper white feeling. And, um, but I don't think it was disloyal, even though I agree with some of the, many of the comments we made like an hour ago about the, the kind of uh, uh, um, fuck you establishment quality to um, the Trump movement to, to this day. Um, but at least in terms of his express ideology, I mean, it, it was flag waving. It was the kind of last stand of white America kind of stuff. Now, I think in, in me, um, and particularly in some of the ways that I thought through things like 10 years ago, I think you could definitely glimpse the kind of like, you know, disloyalty to America is loyalty to the white race, <laughs> you know, ideology. Um, but I, I think I've, you know, I, I think I've rethought a lot of those things. Um, and I think a lot of that stuff is a little too easy for me. And I see a lot of that stuff on the, the DR uh, as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say. I mean, I live here um, and, you know, I'm not, there, there is, of course, a, a kind of line that could be crossed by the regime, but we all make a certain type of Hobbesian bargain with the state that's protecting us. And so, you know, I, I, I don't think what I'm doing is really um, contradictory or, or can't be understood or anything like that. But here's an example of something which I don't hear at all from you anymore. So uh, 10 years ago, I don't know when, when this, this wasn't 10 years ago, six years ago, 
like you had these kind of glib and contemptuous references to sports ball. So Americans, you know, like sports, American football and so on. And you, you had this kind of contemptuous uh, reaction to kind of bourgeois and lower middle class and also kind of universal American uh, cultural interests when you're talking about sports or contemporary music and so on. And you don't seem to have this kind of reaction anymore. Um, like the kind of contempt for the fruits of liberal society. You don't seem to have this. I mean, well, I'm not I think... sure football is the fruits of liberal society. Give me a break. Maybe also just kind of mellowed out a bit. <laughs> I mean, perhaps, but, but I mean, it may seem like a frivolous example. But if uh, you're if you're deeply hostile, different. If you're deeply hostile to uh, the kind of music America produces, like like uh, and has produced, um, like jazz, for example, or, or rock and roll, or you're or you're, you're just completely hostile to uh, uh, athletics in the country and, and the kind of culture surrounding universities and athletics, I do think there's something there's there's some ex- extent to which you're rejecting the society because these things are what people consume. The civic and yeah, so they're what people consume, right? Yeah. That's what engages people aesthetically. And you seem to have made your peace uh, with these things more. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's uh, getting older a little bit. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I guess so. I think you're not making the maybe strongest case of like, he's not actively bashing. I mean, I probably still do think that the music on the whole we produce is pretty shallow, but um, I don't know. I guess I just kind of mellowed a little bit. Mark and I can talk about football uh, a, you know, I don't know. Sure. Maybe yeah. it says something about me that I think I don't it does. I, I, I actually to kind of... want to cling to this point a little more that you have that, that like for kind of bourgeois American cultural artifacts, you have moved from a position of contempt to a position of mild affection. I think that says a lot about your overall <laughs> outlook toward the United States and the and the kind of more profound elements I talked about earlier, like the liberalism, the multiracialism, and so on. Okay. All right, I'll take it. And I look forward to eventually, Richard, hearing your Yeah, we need to do that. Repudiation. By the way, did you see Bryce Harper's home run against I did not actually. I did not actually know. I'm I might the... like sports ball more than you do. <laughs> I'm, more, I'm actually a Detroit Lions fan, you know? So that's oh a very difficult place to be in. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that, but like these things, look, these things, heavy, these things, if they go to an extreme, uh, are quite stupid. <laughs> they can obviously be deconstructed, but it's what we have at hand. And our society yeah. is more functional than almost any other society in the world. And I mean, I think, though, that that's a problem for white nationalism too. The fact that when outright, let's say the fact that you think the United States is more functional, better place than Russia. I mean, Russia is not white nationalist, obviously ethnic Russians are top, the top dogs, but it's right. a diverse society. So it's, that's, that's not the best example, but certainly they're, they're illiberal. Right. And they, and ethnicity is important so far as ethnic Russians are the core of the society. So there is an ethnic element. And the fact that you think the United States is better. I do think that. I, I, don't, think Russia, should... I, I don't want to jump. I don't want to be tedious here. I don't, I'm not sure Russia is so much illiberal as depoliticized. Mm. It's kind of like the reverse mirror of America. Um, we, you know, I've, I've talked about this uh, a lot with the, with my, my group. Um, I, I, and I've heard other Russians talk about it in this way. And this was my impression in my very brief time in Russia. It's a, uh, whereas Americans are just too obsessed with politics and they're going nuts and all this kind of stuff. There's this depoliticization of probably like 60 to 70% of the society where they've just outsourced politics and they don't think about it. And there is a very strong decline of civic society that goes along with it. Um, Perhaps, so I'm not yeah. Sure it's really yeah, that's actually. I'd have to really read more about Russia to know. Yeah. I'm no expert on, on, on Russia, particularly. Putin certainly wants to, I think, project an illiberal ideology as as one stands for an opposition to Western liberalism. But maybe it's more vacuous than that. In, in it's reality. more vacuous, and he, he he'll go this way and that. I mean, it, you know, after he gave his speech about a month ago, he, he they had this rally type atmosphere, and they were just talking about holy war. And mm. there was actually <laughs> something really interesting with um, Dugan recently. He was giving a speech. I, I think that was in a church and. It was just outright, like the West is satanic. We are living through revelations right now. And uh, so you have that, but you also have Putin grasping for like a one struggle subaltern versus the evil whites type ideology, you know, where it's like, you know, the, 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 the wicked West is always, you know, the history of slavery and oppression. And they're, they're doing it again around the world, just under a different name. 
it, he'll kind of grasp for all of these things. Um, and I'm not sure. I mean, I think a lot of the Putin, he'll play the strong man to a certain audience. That's true. But I think a lot in terms of vis-a-vis -vis the West, I, I think a lot of that is just like his fans that imagine mm. him as Hitler. Like when you criticize, when you say this is just like what Hitler did, that's in some ways a kind of enticement for um, Americans, fed up Americans to be like, oh, this guy must be cool. It's like Hitler. Cool. Yeah, but I, I think that's honestly like when you say, oh, I think that we're living a bit on the Internet if if Hitler is cool. I mean, like even even the, the Ku Klux Klan, if you look at like the history of it, even the Ku Klux Klan was fiercely anti-Nazi generally. Speaking. Well, the Nazi Party was anti-Ku Klux Klan as well. Yeah, um, <laughs> sure. But, but I think I think we're living a bit too much on the Internet if we think, I, you know, there, he's definitely trying to appeal to, to like far right and far left in, in the yes. rhetoric. Um, he, in, in terms of propaganda, whereas five years ago, Russia would be trying to appeal to the left. Um, yeah. I think now they are appealing, let's say, 80 percent to the right. On the other hand, though, they are reaching out to India, to China. Uh, I mean, that may be out of necessity, but the, the anti-colonial rhetoric is there, too. He wants to depict, it's interesting, he wants to depict the West as a multicultural uh, woke hellhole on the one hand, and also like the continuing oppressor of, of the global South and the East, you know? Exactly. Exactly. He'll kind of grasp for things. I, I think it, what exactly Putin believes is, you know. But maybe that, reflects the contradictions, maybe that reflects the contradictions of, and I, I need to learn more about the Russian Federation really to say, but, but from what I know about the Russian Federation, there are some contradictions there. So, you know, it's a multi-ethnic diverse society, much more diverse than any, most, even most Western European societies, yet ethnic Russians are the core. There's yeah. open immigration, yet, you know, again, ethnic Russians are the core. Like Islam, hate speech is banned, uh, yet ethnic Russians are the core. So there, maybe, maybe the, the, these like kind of schizophrenic appeals um, and of course, the Soviet Union still in some weird way plays a role in Russian nationalism, like certainly the Great Patriotic War. Yeah, even... I, I think there's a continuity between the one struggle ideology and latter Soviet propaganda, which was about treating the West as colonizers and white supremacists in a way. Um, you can kind of see that in later Soviet propaganda. I, I would say less so during, you know, Stalinism in the post-war or something, or Khrushchev who wanted to, you know, bury the West with amazing productive capacity and so on. Yeah. Um, and this stuff so comes I, I out of... a lot of continuity that, that Putin is... Um, personally, you know, connected to, you know, I, I mean, in, in Germany, Putin met the residue of the, you know, Red Army faction. Right. I mean, he, he wasn't adverse to reaching out to these types of people. So right. I think it's a bit of a mix. Um, it's a weird mix. And then the ideology of, of a lot of the apologists, I think, comes out of the, the late 60s, early 70s, where uh, the left, in reaction to which I think I would agree with them, that the Vietnam War was one of the most horrible things the United States has ever done. Mm -hmm. And we were you know, trying to impose, essentially, a, a, a puppet state that grew out of French colonialism, French Indochina, on Vietnam. I, I think imperialism, that as ridiculous as that is for Ukraine, I think that may actually, that, that language, that Chomsky language, may actually have some applicability to the Vietnam era. But out of that comes these, like, out of this era comes these weird anti-American ideologies that make excuses for like atrocities by communist regimes. You had like denial of the uh, Khmer Rouge massacres. Some of these people who denied these are even uh, still writing for like the uh, Gray Zone. I can't remember the guy's name, but, oh, Gareth Porter. Yeah, he yeah. was a big, so like, it's interesting how they still seem to resonate with Russia too, these people who come out of this kind of Vietnam yeah. ideology that's anti-American and so forth. Yeah, even though the new left as it emerged was not exactly pro-Soviet, but maybe kind of anti-anti-communist, you could say. Yeah. Um, you know, where you kind of end up being a, an apologist because you're, against the anti-communists. <laughs> right, um, yeah. Uh, I think there's something to that. But I, I do think the predominant movement of the new left in the late 60s was moving away from the Soviet Union as, you know, the bastion of the future. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. Kind of but on the other hand, they do want to make, these people do want to make excuses for uh, the, atroc the atrocities of the North Vietnamese, the atrocities of, of the mm -hmm. Cambodians. So that they are interested in that. I think it's just this, like, kind of, in a, in a sense, in the Vietnam era, America kind of lost its, <laughs> its post-war virginity. Because even with the Korea War, with anti-war opposition, that was more kind of isolationist than, like, we're the bad guys. And yeah. Vietnam was like, we are actually the bad guys here. Like, that's yeah. what a lot of people, including elites. It wasn't just, like, kind of kooky people. It was broad elite sentiment, like Harvard, Yale. They were kicking off the ROTC. So 
I yeah. think, and we've it, regained a certain kind of innocence. Certainly, the anti-war opposition on the left and then among like paleoconservatives in the Bush era was we're the baddies, actually. Yeah. You know, because it, it wasn't, I mean, you heard the, the kind of soft version of it was like, we should, you know, take care of our people here at home. And, you know, from the, both the left and the paleocons and the liberals would be like, you know, why are we spending trillions of dollars over the Middle East? We should invest in public schools or something like that. And, uh, and the same you would hear from like Catholic paleoconservatives. And, but I think the harder version of that was we're the baddies, actually. Like what we're doing is evil. We're killing millions of people. It's right. terrible. And you kind of, you, you hear a little bit of that. I mean, I, I do think that America's kind of regained a certain type of innocence in the Ukraine conflict where yeah. it's become this like, we're the goodies, actually. And it's inconceivable and, that we're bad, too. That's just not yeah. plausible. We may be blundering, but we're not murderers, right? We're not acting yeah. immorally. Yes. And I think that is interesting. Um, you see a little bit of we're the baddies, actually, in the Russian apologists who are just like, we provoked this war and Biden's running a proxy war. And <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. as if Biden invaded. You no, know, it's so weird because in the Vietnam era, the people I have sympathy for is somebody who's read about this subject uh, quite a bit and, has, and thinks the anti-war move, the movement, the, the view that this was, a, this was immoral and wrong, not just misguided, was correct. Um, like, it's interesting, though. I, I have sympathy for the people who are like, my God, I grew up on John Wayne movies. My dad fought in the Second World War, but this is wrong. And it's like a pained experience. Whereas yeah. there's others, kind of fringe people, like hippies and so on, that are just like luxuriating in the anti-Westernism, anti-American thing. And they're like, yeah, we have this propagandistic excuse to bash the U.S. And I feel like the anti-war people today are more in the second category. Like, it's an identity almost, you know? Yeah. And also, what's interesting is that you have, like, there was a really good article in The Baffler on um, this guy. He, he has this Italian, what was his name? Coda, Coda Vila or something like this. Um, he's basically one of these Claremont, the Claremonsters type people. And he was, um, he, he would rage against like the CIA or the people who were involved with the administration of Iraq, but he was extremely pro-war and just felt like the war wasn't being fought hard enough and we need to just, just nuke them and get out or something. Like it, it was just this brutal like, right, yeah. war type mentality. What's interesting is that those people are effectively pro-Russia. Yeah. It's you strange, know, all, yeah. all of those people, the, the Claremont Institute types, the, the teal circle, the, the dissident right, which is kind of aligned with them in many ways, there is where you will find all of this, like, you know, anti-war talk about Russia, various shades. It's just interesting. I mean, I, I do think things are flipped. And I, I also think that, you know, like, um, uh, what, what's her name in Finland? Marin, is that her name? Oh, I'm forgetting. The uh, Aceh who's in charge of the country. Um, uh, I, I, I guarantee you that she would be, like, really opposed to the Iraq war if she were in power in 2003. You know, like, shrill denunciations of America. And now you have these types of people, the, the people who, that Code of Eli, is the name, who he raged against, like the CIA type, the tweed, waspy, liberal, you know, institutionalists. They're the ones who are like, well, you know, we've got to support the NATO world and we've got to continue to support Ukraine. It's, it's a weird flip. Um, and I do think that the GOP will be like just out of momentum. I, I think they are going to take up a pro-Russia side. Yeah, that would be that would be remarkable future. if they did. I, I don't I don't know what public opinion is like, but I imagine even still, despite like MAGA, like, this MAGA ideology is growing. It's not just you know I'll moonwash anymore. Like yeah, it's it is growing. But I would still think that the vast majority of Republicans, without doubt at hand, would 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 side very strongly with Ukraine. Uh, I think it's actually a lot more questionable. Maybe maybe that. that's true. I mean, you have look if you have intellectuals. I mean, like I'm using the word in the sense of people who have influence, not people who are smart or whatever. But yeah. if you, when you have all these intellectuals in the right who are you know clearly dog whistling in that direction you're going it's going to filter down eventually definitely i mean you can find people who like I, there's this republican that tulsi actually endorsed or something who was went on television he was like we got to get in the game you know we got to be in the war full on why are we just shipping weapons to ukraine we should be fighting ourselves like you you definitely have those types of guys no doubt but as you said like the the pro-russia stuff which you see amongst the most kind of like salient figures on the right like jordan peterson or or so not not necessarily ben shapiro candace owens 
was mm-hmm, yeah. basically putting forth I saw her, Russian yeah, I saw propaganda. I mean, she was she was she was putting forth things that I said in 2014, which is just the Russian line, which is that oh, there's no difference between Russia, Ukraine, and what, what, like those people will I think kind of win out. They're the most salient voices, and they I do think that we're going to see a kind of interesting flip where much of the right is going to be Putin apologists, and that's going to be in, they're going to put themselves in a very difficult position as the war goes on because I, I do think we're going to see serious escalation. That right wing tradition is gosh, you'd have to go back a long time in American history to find genuine sympathy for like an explicit adversary as a, as like a mainline movement on the political right. Whereas right. the left, you do get this after, after Viet, during and after Vietnam, where there is, as, as I said, this kind of identity emerges where like, I have to condemn U.S. imperialism. The U.S. is a bag. I have to make that argument. You know? Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, let me do this. I am going to call it quits. Okay. That's a great discussion there between History Speaks and Richard Spencer. So we got a request here from Laponius. Let's have a look here. We've got a Canadian politician speaking up. Let's say this is about the 2020 Nova Scotia mass shooting. Rachel Raquel Dancho, Conservative MP in Canada, Speaker, speaking up here. Mr. Speaker, throughout this RCMP political interference scandal, the minister has been using very specific legal words concerning ministerial directives to the RCMP. But whether or not he directed the RCMP... Okay, look at this nice long neck. Not much uh, unnecessary facial tension, uh, wide shoulders, the shoulders aren't deformed. So this is Minister Blair, Commissioner Lucky, said there was no political pressure to publicly release sensitive info about the 2020 Nova Scotia mass shooting. Now we've got contradiction of that story. Let's get more here from Raquel. MP Commissioner, it does not preclude political interference or inappropriate pressure. It doesn't rule it out, Mr. Speaker. Did he or his staff have any conversations with the Commissioner concerning the release of weapons information or the pending Liberal gun control legislation after the massacre and before the April 28th press conference? Yes or no, Mr. Speaker? The Honourable Minister. Speaker, and the members, the member opposite's assertions are completely incorrect. The independence of police operations is a key principle in our democracy. It's a, it's a government, one that our government deeply respects, one that I have always respected, and one which I have always vigorously defended. So notice the tension, the compression, the head tipping back, both to shorten the spine and then the head tipping forward to put also disproportionate pull and stress on the spine. I, I'm just going to interrupt for a moment. It's pretty bad when I see people on one side who are trying to listen and holding on to their earpiece because they can't hear. So I just want everyone to be able to hear the answer. The Honourable Minister from the top, please, so everyone can understand and hear Thank what you're saying. Thank you very saying. much, Mr. Speaker. And, and, as I have said, the member's assertion um, in this matter is completely incorrect. And it's not surprising that the members opposite don't actually... So notice how he keeps tipping his head back and then compressing the neck. And the reason that's so important is you have more joints in the neck than anywhere else in your body. So when you tip your head back and compress your neck, you're sending layers of compression and tension throughout your body. They want to hear the facts, but here they are, Mr. Speaker. At no time did I or any member of our government attempt to interfere in police operations and to be very explicit and clear with words I hope the member might understand. I did not direct. I did not... So look at all the facial tension that this bloke has. And I did not suggest to them to them. Look at all the facial tension this bloke has. The, 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 the commissioner to release information, and as she's testified under oath, 
Mr. Speaker, before the Mass Casualty Commission, and she said, I did not receive direction and I was not influenced by government. Honourable Member for Kildonan St. Paul. Mr. Speaker, we have on the audio recording the Commissioner saying that... Wow, look at that nice long neck, that, that head floating up, leading the whole torso... Uh, width across the shoulders, like she's at ease in her body, at ease in her thinking, at ease in her feelings. Minister's office requested that she do this. That's irrefutable. Oh, she's lovely. Mr. Speaker, so I'm going to ask him again. Did his office or himself have any conversations with the commissioner concerning the liberal gun control policy after that tragic massacre that killed 22 Canadians? Did his office politicize their deaths, Mr. Speaker? Yes or no? The Honourable Minister. No, Mr. Speaker. Okay, you're probably wondering, what about Jews marrying non-Jews? What the hell? One of the conferences, they at least put out there that, uh, if the, in theory, if this was allowed uh, to raise the children Jewish, which wasn't allowed, that intermarriage would be permissible with a, a monotheist uh, partner. And then, uh, as we know, well, in later generations, the reform movement permitted it. So what is the prohibition on intermarriage? Eric uh, said, well, aren't there places in the Talmud where it seems to be a only a rabbinic prohibition? Uh, he called attention to uh, uh, Gemara and Avodazar. There's also one in Sanhedrin that speaks about uh, decrees against uh, sexual relations with non-Jews. So let me tell uh, it's not for me to go through in great detail. You can all see in Rabbi Blech's book. Contemporary Halakhic Problems. Two, but let me just give a quick summary. Because cutter. it is interesting that uh, what we regard as the absolute worst thing, because obviously it's the end of Jewish continuity, there are other things that technically could be seen as worse. So much so that you actually have had people, not just people, rabbis, uh, who said things that uh, if you have, for instance, Jews who are not religious, you shouldn't make a shidduch with them because they're not going to be concerned with Taras Mishpacha. Let them marry non-Jews. And uh, Rabbi Yanka Kamenevsky said that uh, this shows a complete lack of Das Torah. That is a lack of understanding that uh, you take the small uh, area, the prohibition, but you're not seeing the larger picture here, not to mention the fact that most of these people don't know anything anyway, so it's, they don't, it's not their fault, but uh, I guess that would be halakocentric, uh, to use Heschel's expression, when you, you're concerned about the nitty-gritty, but not uh, about the larger picture, that someone's going to marry a non-Jew, and that's the end of Judaism, uh, end of any connection whatsoever. But if you look in Rabbi Black's book, uh, beginning on 270, he does mention that uh, in Avodah Zarah 36b, it's actually a machogis. What is intermarriage? It's uh, you have uh, it clearly it's Torah prohibition that the seven nations. Mark Lucas means controversy of, uh, before the Jews arrived, before the Israelites arrived. But what about other people, other uh, non-Jews? According to the sages, um, marriage with members of other Gentile nations is forbidden only by virtue of rabbinic decree. And Rosh Hashanah holds no that it's also a Torah prohibition, and he, he cites uh, a proof for this. The Rambam rules in accordance with Rosh Hashanah. However, uh, Rabbi Blaif has to acknowledge that uh, the Rif, not the Rif, sorry, the Torah holds uh, not in accordance with Shemar Chai. So according to the tour, and there's others as well, intermarriage is only a rabbinic prohibition. Incredible, you might say, but that's what he holds. Now Rabbi Bleich says, nevertheless, after quoting the tour, the severity of the stricture against intermarriage tends to indicate that even according to the tour, some form of biblical prohibition against intermarriage is not... So people often think, oh, what did you say about this or what did you say about that? And you can hear from Shapiro's explanations here about the Jewish perspective on intermarriage is that there are a ton of different perspectives. You get a perspective from the Torah, you get various rabbis in the Talmud giving their perspective, and then you get rabbinic commentators. So the Jewish tradition is a 4,000-year-old conversation. Jews who are not members of the seven nations must exist. The question to be resolved is the nature of the biblical prohibition. Now, the Torah doesn't... So seven nations refer to the idolaters in the land of Canaan that the Jews were expected to expel and to wipe out and to destroy everything that they ha those seven nations had going on. It's, it's Deuteronomy 7 nationalism. Go in there, wipe everyone out, destroy all their holy places, destroy their temples. I didn't say that. 
Rabbi Black says that since intermarriage is so bad, it must be that the Torah holds that it's an actual Torah prohibition. Well, I don't know. Had the Torah thought that, he had plenty of places to actually say that. Instead, all he says is that uh, only with the members of the seven nations is there a, uh, a prohibition, uh, a biblical prohibition. Uh, now, there's other prohibitions, uh, perhaps fornication, things like that. But that so a, a sin that is a biblical prohibition is more serious than a sin that's just a rabbinic prohibition because the, the Bible, the Torah, goes back to God. The, the rabbinic tradition obviously has more human elements. So the further back you can ascribe a commandment, the weightier it is. That's not the prohibition of uh, that we usually think of in terms of intermarriage. Uh, and he cites numerous examples, uh, tries to find, so for example, the prophet Malachi clearly speaks of it. Okay, Mark Shapiro's losing his neck. He'd really benefit from some Alexander technique. All right, and the head's tipping back onto the spine, shortening and compressing the spine. His neck's getting shortened and compressed, which is going to send layers of compression throughout his body. Against intermarriage, and he's before the rabbis. So that would be a good proof, uh, perhaps. Uh, so uh, you can see... Um... So this shoulder, so his left shoulder, once again, is higher than his right shoulder. His left shoulder seems much more compressed. Notice that that's more distance there compared to that longer distance here. So his left shoulder much more compressed than his right shoulder. What uh, he mentions. Now, as for what Rabbi Black speaks about later, now as for the rabbinic edict that you find in two places, Sanhedrin and Avodah Zarah, that, Eric, is referring to fornication. That's not, that's something else. That's not referring to intermarriage. Uh, um, in fact, the Rambam, I found today, I was looking at it, the Rambam, uh, he has language. So the, the Rambam refers to Moses Maimonides, 12th century Jewish philosopher. This is strange because here, look at the Rambam in, in Ishus. Chapter 1, Dalit. he says that before the Torah was given, a man could meet a woman in the marketplace and he could have relations. After, he said, wow, those were the days before the Torah was given. So prior to 3,200 years ago, a man could meet a woman in the marketplace and have sex with her. I mean, he could give a payment. He could have sex with her wherever they desired. You know, however they desired. But then the Torah came along and said no. It says after the Torah was given, um, that's forbidden because of the Pasuk, there shall not be a harlot among the children of Israel. But then it says, he, he says anyone who has relations with a woman, he doesn't say a Jewish woman here, although that's the implication. I think it's obvious. Uh, uh, so that there you can, uh, anyone who wants more interest in it, as I said, you can look at Rabbi Blythe. Okay. So that uh, maybe this all goes back to the whole business of saying it at Chatzos, uh, uh comes from Tikkun Chatzos. I don't know, it bears investigation. He mentions there's an article by uh, the late Elliot Horowitz. Elliot Horowitz. So he's talking about prayers here that take place after midnight. He wrote a few very interesting articles, and one that became quite famous, in which he showed that the whole idea of Tikkun Chatzos, staying up on um, Shavuos night, uh, it's all because of coffee. When coffee comes, that's what gives people the ability to stay up, and they mention in records of it. Right, so the, the development of coffee has had a profound effect on Western civilization. So people who hang out in bars and drink alcohol, right, that tends to have an effect that, that tends to make people more melancholy and morose. Drinking coffee will tend to make you more hyper. And so this scholar thinks that the development of coffee is what uh, gave rise to these after-midnight prayers. That's how we, we stop and we drink the coffee. Okay. Okay, let's get a little bit more here from uh, Mark Shapiro. I have that uh, perhaps the Talmud was really supposed to not be for the masses, but was a closed book designed, written by rabbis or other rabbis for those who... I think he's absolutely right. I, I don't think that the rabbis of the Talmud ever expected that anyone, including non-Jews, could just pick up copies of their discussion and analyze it. I mean, the Talmud was meant to be a closed book 
is only studied by fellow rabbis. Who haven't heard me say it. I know it's heretical. I know it goes against the whole idea of Dafiomi, but uh, I've offered certain proofs. And here's another one. It's a, uh, this is a story in Kiddushin where it tells about Rebbe Barashi, one of the uh, Amorai, how uh, his wife adorned herself and uh, he would not uh, fulfill the mitzvah that he's supposed to of relations with his wife. And she walked in front of him. He didn't recognize her and said... So get that. In, in Judaism, it's a mitzvah. It's a divine commandment. All right. You must have regular sex with your wife. Your wife is entitled to regular sex. And, uh, who are you? She says I'm a... And, and regular sex. So in America, in a hypersexualized society, that might mean at least once a week or even twice a week. All right. That was, I think, Reb Moshe Feinstein's ruling that in a hypersexualized society, a man owes his wife more regular sex. Uh, in other circumstances, depending on his pr profession, it might be once a week, once a month, or even once a year. Prostitute. And lo and behold, he says, uh, okay, let's get it on. And this is about one of the MRI. <laughs> and this isn't, and it talks about this, about Rebekiah. And, the, and, and what um, the story, uh, the point of this for Rabbi Harris is he's dealing with the question, let's say you do an action which you think is wrong. You think so get that, he's talking about a rabbi in the Talmud who has sex with a prostitute. Which is not very rabbinic behavior. Sinful, but in the end, it's not sinful. You know, what do you make of this? This reminds me of Alan Dershowitz in his, in his book, The Best Defense. He, he had an amazing case there. This guy came into a room to kill his, I think it was his roommate or something, and he shot him. It turned out later that the roommate was already, or the guy there was already dead. So he can't be charged for murder, obviously, but he was charged and convicted of uh, attempted murder. So, but, so Dershowitz, the whole article there, and Dershowitz was arguing against this, is can you be charged with attempted murder if the person's already dead? Dershowitz's claim was like, you should only be charged with uh, assaulting a corpse or something like that. Uh, so it's, it's a very interesting question. And, um, and, but that's the, the crazy case there uh, with regard to this. Let me share with you something that I have yet to uh, publish all this. Uh, what I want to do now is, uh, well, let me ask a few more things before we uh, continue. Because we saw that uh, at these conferences, they're getting rid of Jewish law, obviously. We spoke about Jewish law, Shabbos. We didn't really speak about kashrus. If you look at the um, the uh, Jewish Encyclopedia, they, I, I noticed uh, just uh, this week that they have a very nice entry on rabbinic conferences, uh, and they include more stuff. So, for example, it, it talks about how uh, at the Breslau conference they deal with Shabbos also, how uh, the importance of Shabbos, and that you shouldn't. They actually say you shouldn't violate biblical prohibitions. Uh, okay, so this is the twenty third talk that uh, Mark Shapiro has given on the rise of Reform Judaism in. Europe in the 19th century and the Orthodox rabbinic response. That's the context. Because it's still Shabbos, but the rabbinic ones, and they say about Erev, and Erev is an invasion of the Sabbath law, which is now void because it's uh, it's uh, meaningless. Uh, but they also got rid of, as we spoke about, not, not just um, Halachot, they got rid of Minhagin, but we also got rid of Minhagin. We've spoken about Minhagin that we got rid of, so what, well, why is it problematic also that they would get rid of Minhagin? Okay, so a Minhag is a custom, all right? It doesn't have necessarily the force of Halacha, which is law. Right. There's law, law that comes from God, law that comes from the rabbis, then there are customs that people develop. In his, um, in his now, there's also a traditional Jewish saying that the custom of my father is to me a law. Like, who am I to override the customs of my father? So that's how I live my life. The custom of my father is to me a law. It's it's a divine obligation. That's that's what I take Just on. Uh, volume 1, page 238, he says it's true we got rid of them in Hugging. He even mentions a couple. He says, for instance, in Poland and Russia, they don't say Yosros and Beutin. He says there's a difference, though. When th basically, he says when things happen naturally, that's different than when you get a group and you pull them together and you decide you're going to reform Judaism. And as part of the reforms, you get rid of Min uh, uh, Look, Maishal got rid during COVID, got rid of the Yitzhak and they're not bringing... So, yeah, Orthodox Jews, you know, Orthodox congregations, they're constantly making changes. They're constantly reforming how they do things. But Reform Judaism was a much more radical break with the past. So to be an Orthodox Jew in practical terms means that you accept 
uh, the binding nature of the Shulchan Aruch, a 15th century four-volume compendium of Jewish law. So you can say that's a reform. Uh, we, those of us uh, who were in Shul, you know Hoshanis. When I was young, we always did Hoshanis. So in response to COVID, a lot of prayers were eliminated or various uh, synagogue practices were shortened to to reduce the chances of COVID transmission, and some of them are not being restored. I also notice among a lot of uh, Orthodox Jews I know, during the lockdown, they got out of the habit of practicing Orthodox Judaism, which is a, a communal religion. And so now that the lockdown's over, they haven't recaptured their level of religious observance and religious fervor, right? Once you get out of the habit of doing onerous things, such as, you know, daily prayer at synagogue, daily study of Torah at synagogue, it's very hard to go back. And this is the Ashkenazic Minhag uh, after Musaf. Now I've seen many shuls, they all seem to have changed it to the, the Sephardic way of doing it, the Hasidic way of doing it, uh, I think the Ari held to do this way, to do it uh, right after Hallel. But we, the reason we do it is because it's more convenient, and uh, you don't have to take, put away the lulav, take it out again, but that's a reform. It's definitely a reform, but it's a reform with a small r. It doesn't. Uh, it, but, but if this was part of all movement where they stand up and they're they're changing Judaism, and then they get rid of all these things together with the the, the halachic matters, then it becomes uh, more problematic. It's like the old joke that um, uh, I think it was maybe Shadal who said that uh, we could compromise. So we, we'll get rid of Yakum Porkan. If that's if that's the reform you want, we can compromise, get the report, and that'll be that. So it means get rid of uh, you know one very minor prayer. Uh, uh, but once the, it's part of a whole procedure to get rid of things, you can't do that. Uh, look, we I told you about how in uh, the Sephardic world. At least in most Fardic shuls, they don't call people up uh, by the name. They just say. So, meaning to the Torah. So, when I get called to the Torah, it's like, da da da, Levi Ben Abraham. But in the Sephardic tradition, they don't call people by name. So, about 80% of the 70%, 70 to 80% of the world's Jews are Ashkenazi. About uh, 15% are Sephardic and about 5% are Mizrahi. Ashkenazi meaning uh, European Jews, Sephardic meaning from, from Spain, southern. Mediterranean and the Mizrahim, meaning Jews from the Middle East, and then there are Falashian Jews from Ethiopia who genetically are not Jewish but were declared Jewish by the Jewish state because many American Jews thought that would show that Zionism isn't racist. Rishon, Shani, Shlishi, or Cohen, Levi, Israel, and then Ravi, Hamishi. But this was one of the reforms that the reformers advocated in the earlier, in the first generation. We saw last semester, and the Orthodox were very opposed to it. Well, what's the big deal how you call them up? Because as I said, it was it was part of a whole litany of things that they wanted to get rid of. Also, I think, I, I wondered, if you recall in the earlier classes, why this was such a big deal? Why? Why is it such a problem calling someone up by their name, Moshe Ben Yaakov? Uh, I saw that one author writes, I forgot to mention this, that um, it's because they were embarrassed of their Hebrew names, and that's why they wanted to be called, they didn't want to be called up by name. So when you look, I, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's really the reason why. I think it might have been that they were just, we spoke about this um, exaltation of the Sephardic world. If that's what the Sephardim do, then that's uh, what we're going to do. One reform, which I think no one in my show was complaining about, is the Misha Beiraks. We're very much streamlined. Uh, already we had like before COVID, uh, sick. we don't have, we got rid of individual Misha Beiraks for sick people. Instead, it's one announcement, and uh, although we divide men and women, which is interesting, but you insert it yourself. But uh, even once that was put in, we, in many shows, every person going up there, it's uh, it's if the person has grandchildren, so it's all the children, all the grandchildren, they go through all the names. It takes a long time, so uh, we got rid of that. But so we've seen now the uh, the different uh, rabbinic conferences. They, they they focus on women's. Okay, so about the most streamlined version of a Saturday morning Orthodox service is uh, two hours. I mean that's just going at a breakneck pace. More, more common version of an Orthodox service on Saturday morning is over two and a half hours, close to uh, three hours. So I know what you're saying. You want more Mark Shapiro. Now, I don't know the details. Decided that reform is something they want. Usually, uh, 
governments didn't like reform. And uh, the government ruled in the 1830s that the Jewish community has to pray in German. We know that it was basically ignored, but uh, there were protests and the law was ignored. But in 1837, the government began to enforce the law. So normally Jews pray in Hebrew, right? Well, particularly Orthodox Jews, conservative Jews overwhelmingly pray in Hebrew. Uh, Reformed Jews pray partly in Hebrew, partly in English. They would send people into the synagogue government officials to make sure that they prayed in German. And for 100 years, not sorry, for 10 years. The 1,400 Jews who lived in this state were forbidden to have public services in German. Now, I'm sure that the, the Orthodox gathered in people's homes and did it properly. But the main synagogues, a few of them, this, it, by government rule, it became uh, German prayers. Uh, now, the job of the rabbi for the German government was to advance public morality and to preach law-abiding religiosity. That becomes a major factor for reform, and only later... Right, so the government in Germany and in other countries, they get to license clergy, including rabbis. And they do it in the national interest. It was then adopted by the, uh, the Orthodox, namely sermons. Another point we said again and again, sermons, which are so vital to the modern Orthodox show, which are so basic. Right. Sermons were developed by the Protestants, and now they become a key part of both Judaism and Roman Catholicism. You know they're coming as soon as the Torah is put back to the Ark. This is a reform innovation. Rabbanin would have drushas, but they wouldn't be during davening, and they wouldn't be the form of... Well, it's a reform innovation in the sense that they took it from the Protestants who developed it three centuries prior. Sermon we have. The 10 or 15 minutes, which is supposed to be edifying and to raise the spirit. That comes directly from the churches, which then goes to Reform Judaism. Try, well, try to imagine what would happen if the rabbi gets up and says, this Pasuk says X. Rashi comments on this Pasuk something, but it's a problem. Because this, what Rashi says seems to be contradicted by the Gemara. And then give the answer and sit down. People look at you like you're crazy. That's a sermon. Okay, Gemara refers to the Talmud. So this is typical Jewish learning. Uh, text A says this, but text B contradicts it. And then text C contradicts both A and B. Then D comes along with a way of reconciling all these three opinions, but then E challenges D, right? That's typical Jewish learning. And they'd be right, because that's not a sermon. A sermon is supposed to leave the people morally inspired, uh, but that's not traditional. That's uh, that Hirsch was really the first one, Michelle Schoenfer Hirsch, who adopted this, and uh, it now has become standard so much so that we judge our rabbis often, and whether we keep them or we hire them, not by if they know Shas and Postkin, not if they could give a good sheer, but how well they speak. Yeah, I mean, so Shas and Poskim. Shas refers to the Talmud. Poskim, uh, the rabbinic deciders in the the post-Talmudic era. That's uh, the conservative shows. The rabbis spend the whole summer preparing for their sermons on the high holidays. But we also, uh, it's such a big deal. And maybe, and look, we need it. I mean, and we've had great uh, sermonizers. You look at Rabbi Lamb's sermons, Rabbi Young, others. I mean, they, they, the Luxstein, they became masters in this. But we need to be honest that this is not what we're part of the traditional East European. Those of you who've been with me to set to um, Budapest, when we go into the, the, the old Kazinsi show, we'll talk about what Hungarian Orthodoxy is like uh, in a couple of classes and its response to reform. But everything there remains the way it was from the mid 19th century, which means no sermons. So what do you do? During Kiddush, the Rav will. Uh, We'll give a little to our Torah, but no, no sermons. So. Okay, so let me continue. Uh, I have to enforce it. So Geiger said, I don't believe in these laws. So Abraham Geiger was perhaps the most important reform rabbi of the 19th century, but reform Judaism, which developed in Germany, conservative Judaism also developed in Germany, and the modern Orthodox Judaism denomination also developed in Germany as a response to the rise of reform and conservative Judaism. But... Reform Judaism, conservative Judaism never developed an intellectual or an activist, the equivalent of a Martin Luther. 
But since I was appointed to the base in, I will enforce these laws. So Okay, based in refers to a Jewish law court. He doesn't believe in, in, in Gittin, let's say. But since the community requires... And uh, Gittin refers to Jewish divorces. A get is a Jewish divorce. Gittin is plural. There's a get. He'll make sure that a proper get is written. Uh, if you're a secular... Not easy to write a get. That, that's very demanding. You have to know a lot of stuff. You don't want to hire some bargain basement rabbi to draw up a get. Jewish divorce. Lawyer, that makes sense, but it doesn't make sense for a Torah Jew. He can't have a basin where one of the people doesn't believe in it. Uh, but that's what he was appointed. Uh, so Orthodox rabbis will not serve on a based in a Jewish law court with non-Orthodox rabbis. So Tikkun represents old-style traditionalism, and Niger represents modernity. We will see later. There's going to be a new type of modernity, an Orthodox modernity, but that's when we get to Shem Shemuel Hirsch. We're not there yet. Right now, you have a choice: your traditional, old-fashioned, or your modern. You can't, you can't be, and then you're not observant. You're not orthodox. You can't be orthodox and be modern. It's Hirsch who's going to come on the scene and say this is a false, uh, a false choice. That you can be traditional, that is observance of observe halacha, but you can also be modern. But that did not exist at this time. And in fact, the reform argument was that uh, Jews of Germany, you have a choice. You can be modern like me, Geiger, and the rest of us, and you go to university and have everything that this modern and light and German state offers, or you can be like this old-fashioned uh, Rabbi uh, Tikkun. Now, the traditionalists in Breslau were able to postpone Breslau's arrival. Okay, so there. We're, but our play, we're not going to give the sermon there because we turned it around. But as far as I know, the priest or the preacher, they, it's not like our shul where they have a place, a makom kavua, where they stand. Uh, but uh, I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, let me take some comments and questions here. And the Tan Khan says, Brandeis Magazine recently had an article touting intermarriage as a way of expanding the Jewish tent. Uh, there have been people who've also said that, uh, and they're right about this, that it actually helps with anti-Semitism. Because if you have a Jewish, if your brother-in-law is Jewish, you're less inclined to be anti-Semitic. But uh, it is amazing. Uh, my father, in his book on uh, American Judaism after World War II, called A Time for Healing, uh, he speaks about how... Um... So I met his father, Edwin Shapiro, a great, great Jewish historian. So Mark comes from... I presume a long line of scholars. I only know his father is quite the scholar. In the 70s, there was a television show, Bridget and Bernie. And there was protests by leading Jewish organizations because it portrayed an intermarried couple. So I remember when I called Mark's father for an interview, Edward Shapiro, they, they saw my phone number and they thought that I was their son because they had a son who lived nearby. And so they, they greet me like a son. By the 1980s, it was unimaginable that anyone would raise objections. And uh, 30-something, which is a popular show as well, had an intermarried group. And no one would. And obviously today, those of us who live in the New York area, uh, Lee Zeldin. He's intermarried. He's married to a Mormon. And the Frum community is going to be voting for him like nine, other than Satmar, which is getting some goodies from uh, the current governor. So they'll vote wherever they get the money. Zeldin has been touring all the Frum neighborhoods and he's going to get like 95 to 99% of the vote. In the Black Hat, probably 100%. And he, he's intermarried. No one's even raising So the Black Hats refers to those traditional Orthodox Jews who wear black hats. Issue anymore. We know we've lost that battle. What are you going to do? Uh, this... Notice how incredibly pragmatic Jews and Judaism are. Uh, look, we, we've lost that battle. Okay, we move on. Lost that battle on intermarriage, and uh, even in the most from, you have questions now. Can you and your son is with a non who's married to a non-Jew, or you're more your daughter is married to a non-Jew? So the grandchildren are Jewish. Can you invite them to the Passover seder? What you do? Even Rav Mazuz in Israel, and in Israel you don't have this phenomenon, but he's getting questions from France. He writes in his book on Pesach about uh, he says that you can invite uh, relatives of yours who are intermarried. I mean, the, the time that we cut them off, that doesn't it doesn't work anymore, and it's not applicable. So uh, I understand why, but you know, we, from our perspective, it's a, it's a it's an unfortunate thing, but it's a reality we have to live with. Uh, but uh, then to turn it, uh, we're we're never going to reach the point in our circles where this is actually a positive. Uh, but uh, really, it, it, that's what America is all about, isn't it? Uh, the, the different group. So uh, Mark Shapiro got his PhD in modern Jewish thought at Harvard University. Just come together and uh, I teach my classes. I teach a class in world religions and we get to Judaism, we do with Ezra. 
and I haven't read an essay on interfaith marriage, which used to be for Christians also used to be a no, a no, no. It is almost impossible to find anyone today who sees a problem with intermarriage. And many of the students think I'm, it's like a racist sort of thing when, when I say that traditional Judaism opposed intermarriage. After I explain the whole history of it and how, uh, you know, what it's about and uh, just practically, if both partners are not Jewish, how you can't run a Jewish home, it's just impossible. And there's, I show them pictures of some weddings where you see in most of our shows, you have people of all different colors and everything. Um, so there's no racial element at all. But uh, I understand if you're not raised in our circles with our tradition, the idea that in America, in in the you know the 21st century that there'd be a problem with uh, marrying outside your group and you know let me say something which also might be radical and heretical if you're not a Torah observer Jew if if, if Torah is not important to you then why shouldn't you not intermarry there's no reason not to this is America everyone should be together with everyone it's uh, we have nothing to say to people who are not Torah observant really why you shouldn't intermarry you can send them birthright and maybe they'll come back and be influenced but really I mean maybe you have an answer I don't have an answer if you're not a Torah Jew it's not today in America what can you say to people and, and it's worse in other countries and that's in America. Uh, Eric said, second time, we'll get rid of the second you come Okay. Rabbi Shudnow, oh, thank you, Rabbi Shudnow, for joining us. Uh, I missed you a few classes. Uh, as a Navy chaplain attending a conference, I sat in the seat of Rashi in the Rashi Synagogue in Worms. Uh, either on, um, on Shabbos Agadol and Shabbos Shuva. The, uh, you take, well, I'll take that back about Ravelvo. Not, I, I know Rukhayim did it. Uh, I, I don't know uh, Ravelvo. I don't think he did either. I know for a fact Rukhayim did it because Rabbi Golovsky told me, and I've seen it in other places as well. So this is an interesting point here. You have Rukhayim. He's the rub of your community. He doesn't give a shear to the community. In those days, he didn't give shear to the community. He doesn't speak to the community. He doesn't give a, he doesn't uh, preach to the community. Why? What are you paying for? You're paying for a rabbi. He doesn't give classes to the community. He doesn't poskin. Rabbi didn't poskin. For that, you have your Silkel and another Dayani. So here you have a rabbi. He doesn't decide all the questions. Poskin means rule on Jewish law. He doesn't preach to the community. He doesn't teach. Why would you pay him? What would you do? But you know what Rabbi said the job of a rabbi is? That's not the job of a rabbi. He wants someone to poskin Shilas. You can hire someone. He wants someone to preach higher. The job of the rabbi is to take care of So poskin Shilas means to rule on questions about Jewish law. But uh, for, for many congregational rabbis, their primary job is not poskening on Shilas, ruling on Jewish law, and it's not giving sermons, it's giving pastoral care, getting people jobs, visiting people in hospital. ...of the community and take care of the least fortunate ones. The client would take care of the widows and the orphans and make sure that everyone was taken care of. Today we would say that's the job of a social worker. A typical rabbi, many rabbis, they don't want to be involved with that. That's not what they want to give shiurim and do things. And for Chaim, it's bone care. It's just the opposite. Other people give shiurim. You, you want to give shiurim, they can hire you as a mug cheer. But as a job of a rabbi, it's your job to go visit the sick people and go take care of them. And also, well, there's something else. The community, they, they can bask in the glory that they had such a Talmud Hakam like Rukhayim. Talmud Hakam means Very Talmud different scholar. today what people uh, is expected for a rabbi. Charles said the show. Yes, and Mel reminds us that the, the presence of Kaplan on the JTS faculty made the merger impossible. Uh, so Mordechai Kaplan was an atheist who went to an Orthodox yeshiva, but was an atheist. He eventually joined the Jewish Theological Seminary, which was the seminary of the, the center-left uh, conservative Judaism movement. I did not ask Nachi Weinstein about a late Tamar. Maybe I should ask him. Yes, and uh, Mel says the majority of Jews think it's racist to be opposed to intermarriage. Because if you explain it to them that in a different way, that it's a religious thing and that race has nothing to do with it, then they, I, I can see the students basically all come to terms with it, that uh, it's a religious thing and you can't really practice Judaism unless both people do it. So they get it. Uh, but most people, if you don't explain to them, they think it's an ethnic thing. Blazerson says, birthright accepts those who only have Jewish fathers and following protests ended all discussions about the importance of Jews marrying Jews. What are they, they going to do? The federations also had to stop it because uh, you have lots of leaders of federation whose children are intermarried, and now you have uh, leaders of federation who themselves are not halachic Jews because they're patrilineal. You have leading reform rabbis who are not halachic Jews. That's why I said that we need a new category, perhaps. I spoke about this category of the God-fearers. Josephus speaks about these people in, uh, in the Second Temple times who were not willing to convert. In fact, uh, Nero's uh, wife was one of them. They, they, they were fed up with Roman religion. They wanted some meaning to their life, and they found it in like a quasi-Judaism. They weren't ready to convert entirely either because of Brasmila or they didn't want to take everything on, but they were called God-fearers. So these people, uh, we can't just consider them uh, like non-Jews, and we have to—we want them on our side. We want them supportive of Israel, but they're not Jewish, logically. 
so uh, I think this category may be uh, the god fear. It's not my idea. I once spoke about these god fearers and a big macher in Federation. Many of you would know the name if I said it, but I don't know if he wants me to. Might be. He says I should come speak at a Federation gathering about this, which is impossible. So a macher is an important man, a big deal. Because that would be very offensive to the uh, people there. But uh, from us, I think... So Jewish federations tend to be overwhelmingly run by non-Orthodox Jews who tend to be on the left politically, culturally, socially, religiously. Uh, to create a category of people who feel Jewish, who desire the best for the Jewish people, they're just not halakhically Jewish. My daughter was involved in a federation event and in my local federation in New Jersey, and then they took them all to Israel, so they had an event. Her roommate, she calls me up, her roommate's not Jewish. Her roommate's patrilineal. But that's... Uh, patrilineal meaning her father's Jewish, but according to traditional Orthodox Jewish law, you're only Jewish by descent if your mother is Jewish. So I think uh, Mark Shapiro has something like uh, five children. Every college rabbi, Orthodox rabbi, when they and he's a professor at a Jesuit college. He's a professor of modern Jewish thought at uh, the University of Scranton in New Jersey. Do a wedding knows that you have to look into the yichus because a lot of the people go to Chabad. Yichus meaning ancestors, for instance, are not halachically Jewish, and this is why I got very annoyed at a certain Chabad house that will remain nameless because um, I'm at this Chabad house. And they have good wine there. You know, the Chabad houses, they, are, they need their wine and the liquor to keep the kids there. Uh, but so Chabad Jews tend to really enjoy life, and they tend to drink a lot of alcohol on religious occasions. They tend to sing and dance. They're much more physically demonstrative. It's much more visceral, physical religion than Litvish, you know, Ashkenazi Judaism. Look at the wine bottle, and the wine bottle is uh, not mavushal. So there's nothing wrong with mavushal wine. Uh, you can get it at any good uh, wine store. But you can't serve it in a Chabad house. The reason you can't serve it as a Chabad house is because lots of the people at the Chabad house are not halakhically Jewish. Not to mention the fact that you have non-Jews coming anyway because they hear it's a good evening. I know this for a fact because I was at the Princeton Chabad house uh, where my daughter is, and the non-Jews were coming because I think the food and the atmosphere is interesting. But even at a Chabad house that only has Jews, you have a good number of Jews there that are not halakhically Jewish. So uh, I thought I would say something to the rabbi, but I, I, maybe I made a mistake. I didn't say it because I didn't want to offend him. And uh, but in retrospect, I should have said something to him that uh, how could he do, how could he do this? Uh, they're not. They're going to have any Chabad house in the world. You will have my experience non-halakhic Jews, even people from Israel. You have people in Israel now that have a Russian mother, let's say, yeah, they're not so. Okay, guys, stay halakhic, stay in yeshiva, stay off the crack, don't intermarry. Bye-bye.